Hello again, friends, and you are my friends, and welcome back to another edition of the 605 Super Podcast, this being the extra innings of opening day Star Wars, and I'm very happy to kick this off. You know how this works, Star Wars, our most unprofessional series of shows where people are added on, limited editing, awful audio mixed in with great audio, you never know what you're going to get, but on the line, on the line, I can't speak, on the line right now, we have two Great guest to kick things off. Our first guest is the host of the Mid-Atlantic Championship Podcast right here on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your friend and mine, Mike Sempervivi. Mike, how are you today? I'm doing pretty good, and I'd like to thank you for making me feel at home by stumbling over that introduction in the way that I do on <laughs> most of my <laughs> Well, also on the line... To counteract the fact that Mike is knowledgeable about baseball, we have someone who I've never heard discuss baseball ever. He is Southern California's finest. You know him under many different names, from Rockin' Jerry Brown to Vandal Drummond, and several names I won't repeat at this time. He is your friend and mine, Kurt Brown. Kurt, welcome back to the Super Podcast. Why, thank you. And to jump to the question that I know you are going to ask me is, I expect the winner of uh, the World Series this year to be the Tuba City Cuddlefish. You know, it's so outrageous, that name you just said, that it has to almost be a real minor league team. That would be bitching. <laughs> Did you say Tuba City Cuddlefish? Yes, yes. <laughs> I, well, a little, a little backstory. I was trying to just think of something, and I was doing some more... Uh, Research on the wrestler Jimmy El Pulpo, which, you know, who was around in the 1930s and 40s, which meant Jimmy the Octopus. But uh, 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 one of the newspapers mistook the translation for Jimmy the Cuddlefish, which I thought was awesome. Tell me about Jimmy El Pulpo. I don't know too much about him. He was a guy who never held a championship of any kind, but he was somebody who uh, – he was born here, but he started wrestling in Mexico like at the very beginning of the uh, uh, Luderoth uh, era, you know, 1934. And he came here, and he was actually a really – he's actually a, a pretty big star, and they even did hype uh, of Strangler Lewis uh, managing him. They wrote it up in the Times. And he even went over clean over uh, Gus Sonnenberg in L.A. Oh, wow. So he was like a regional name. Like, you know, uh, and then in 1948, very abruptly, he left the business and, you know, looks like he never looked back. And uh, after a lot of searching, I found an obituary for him in 1993. You know, he lived into his 80s and, you know, you know, looked like he just, you know, went back to a construction job of some kind and did pretty well for himself. Um, so one guy who got out of the business, not only unscathed, but, you know, did pretty okay. I want to give everyone an apology real quick here as we're recording, because I'm wondering, there may be a chance we momentarily lose power and it comes back on. There is a downpour right here, right now at Last Manor. There is thunder, there is lightning. There is rain coming down as hard as possible. I am seeing trees shake in the wind. I would not declare this to be hurricane-force winds, but certainly very, very high-velocity winds right now, sweeping in and around Last Manor. I feel like a weather forecaster. I'm doing this 
with great gusto as I <laughs> relay what's happening here. <laughs> but uh, hopefully we keep our power. Uh, I have a generator, but it takes a second to kick on. So there's a chance everyone will be kicked off the call and I'll have to add everyone back on. But we'll see what happens. When as you hear- weather the storm, as you weather the storm, I, I, I think it would be awesome if you put like a sea captain hat on and, and a, you know, a big yellow raincoat of some kind, you know, just just make it look like you're in command of this. I weather the weather, but uh, also, Mike, I want to ask you. <laughs> whether or not. <laughs> Mike, you are a. Do de- at the just make sure that you give a, a greetings and a 100-year-old a, a uh, birthday celebration, just like Willard Scott used to do as his toupee would go flying off in these conditions. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, you are a Washington Nationals fan. What's it like this year for you? You know, the season's about to beginning. We all know why the season's beginning so late. This is the year you guys are supposed to, I can't speak. This is the year you guys are supposed to raise the banner. This is the year you guys are supposed to celebrate last year's world championship, get the rings. What's it like right now for the Nationals? Oh, we're going to revel in this no matter what. And as far as I'm concerned, there is no 2020 season, certainly not a proper National League season with these rule changes and everything that's taking place. So I am looking at this as the Nationals are the de facto official 2020 National League champions. Now, whether they actually go ahead and and win uh, another National League championship, I I don't know about that, but I'm still going to revel in this World Series victory and even though we didn't get our shine and, and it's going to be very weird with the, the celebration, the, the ring ceremony took place, was going to take place online. And then they decided to wait on that and try to do something with their, their fans being involved and things like that. The bottom line is, is last year was a magical year. It was incredible. You know, you beat the Darth Vader of, you know, modern times of the last couple of years of the American league with the Houston Astros and you do it in a magical way. You do it in a storybook way. So, you know, it, with the, how things have been for so long with almost making it and, and dying on the vine and losing Bryce Harper and looking like this opportunity was missed. And that opportunity was missed actually to be able to hold up a trophy, even though you won't be able to defend it in the way that you did, you know, that other teams have traditionally done in the past. I don't care. I'll take my roses. Kurt, you are in Southern California, a hotbed of baseball. Well, I don't know if any, it's really a hotbed. Everyone's leaving the game early and getting there late. But <laughs> mm-hmm. were you ever swept up in it? You know, any of the times that the Dodgers were having a great season or heading to the World Series, did you ever get swept up in it? When I was a teenager, I uh, had a cousin who was, she was about like seven years older than me, and she was so awesome. She'd take uh, me and her little brother to a lot of the Dodger games, so... In the 70s, I got to see the Davy Lopes era when he was the king of stealing bases, uh, Steve Garvey. And, and yeah, I, I did get to see them almost get to the World Series. And uh, I, well, I, I saw in 81, I think it was, they actually, they actually nailed it. And again, in 88. And, uh, but, you know, other than that, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty, it's all foggy to me. <laughs> Uh, but Elena and I go to uh, an Angels game about once a year just for shits and giggles, and we really enjoy the experience. But, you know, we have a hard time just sitting down and, you know, watching a full game. Part of it was I grew up in a family that wasn't really a sports family. Well, Kurt, speaking of Southern California fogginess, with COVID-19 going around and all the <clears throat> restrictions about where you can go, and I've been seeing on the news different things about L.A. County, what's it like going to a dispensary right now? 
Oh, um, the only well, the only dispensaries I will go to are the ones that I know are thoroughly licensed, especially during the COVID. And it's uh, I go to the MedMen one in Santa Ana, and uh, yeah, they're very uh, they're very strict about the social distancing. They do that thing where they uh, they have the tape on the ground, and, you know, making sure you're six feet apart from each other. You have to wear your mask, and um, but we're actually hunkering down enough. I mean, I in the past I have had lymphoma, um, and uh, you know, I shouldn't be getting out too, too much and high-fiving people or anything like that. So we're trying to hunker down the best we can. But the only pre- people we're hanging with are uh, my sister and Elena's brother. And uh, so we're we're going to start trying the dispen- I mean, the delivery route of dispensaries. You know, Mike, I'm dealing with, and I just talked to Kevin Sullivan and John McAdam on uh, Star Wars Part 1 about this. I don't want to send my kids back to school, and it looks like I'm probably not going to have to because I think as of the last day, the governor has now come out and said if parents don't feel comfortable sending their kids, they can do online learning. We're not going to force them to. I don't see how they can make anyone go right now. I don't see how they can make teachers go in right now. Oh, they're trying to they're trying to get my wife to go in. She's a speech therapist, and the teachers don't have to go in, but they're trying to say that she does, so we're livid. We're so pissed off. Mike, what about in your area? You have a son. What's going on with the schools? And he's going into seventh grade this year, and we had the basically the complete shutdown in the middle of the third quarter of last year. And we were able to scramble, and there was thankfully we have the technology here at the house. You know, there's he's got a, I've got a computer. Uh, we were able to get him an old laptop, an old uh, MacBook, and you know he's got some technology here and. Luckily enough, uh, it seems like for the rest of the area, people were able to get uh, whatever they are, not MacBooks, but the the PC version of whatever they are that they were they were giving kids. And they they seem to have enough of those. And it seemed to work out okay. I mean, obviously, you lose you lose a lot of that experience, you know, for a kid, you know, being there with teachers, especially if you got, you know, a kid with teachers who care, you know, they they miss that and they miss that that structure. Mm -hmm getting everything together and it was a little bit of a fight and because of the schedule that uh me and and his mother are on it's you know it's going to be tough to go through an entire whole school year like that but if that's what we have to do that's what we have to do and i'm a i'm a big proponent of the public school system um and i have a lot of concerns with what's taking place right now with a lot of the rhetoric you know it's a in some ways, it's a no-lose situation for, for the people that are in power right now, you know, who are for school choice and, and are for uh, magnet schools and private schools and would rather put a lot of the emphasis that way. You know, I worry about the future of public schools that are already underfunded, that are already, you know, pulled into a zillion different directions as it, as it is overcrowded, underfunded. Just, you know, it, it's disappointing. So anything I can do to try to help in my district and do as much as I can and be as hands-on as I can at home, that's what I'm going to do and try to support the system the best way we can go about doing it, which very likely in our area is looking like pretty much all online learning, at least I would assume for the first two quarters of the year. And, you know, uh, my son's not in, 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 he's only in middle school right now. He's not playing sports or anything like that, but there is band. And I don't know how those sorts of extracurriculars are going to be affected, 
Um, you know, it's going to be, it's interesting. I wonder what kids in high school are going to do now that are losing extracurriculars. Do you do, try to go out and do, you know, more uh, volunteer work? How do you, how do you try to make yourself, you know, attractive for colleges in this era? It's a, it is a really daunting situation for people and, and it's for the school system and for all the kids, you know, let alone the parents, you know, I know, uh, obviously there's a lot of frustrations and, you know, with people's work and things like that. It's just, it is a really confusing time right now, but you know, I would not feel comfortable. I would not, even if somebody tried to force it, I wouldn't send my kid back if I didn't feel comfortable with the environment, which he had to go back to, no matter what anybody wants to say. I agree. And bless you. Uh, bless you for stating that better than I could have. I, and I got to see uh, Elena doing her speech therapy online for the last couple of months of the last school year. And, and it, it reminds me of like Apollo 13, Houston, we got a problem. Let's, like you said, let's scramble and do what we can. I mean, we have to do what we can. And, you know, yeah, like you said, the people in power, I, you know, I, I don't think we're even pawns <laughs> in the game. So we got to do what we can to take care of ourselves. I'm, I'm for private schools. I'm for, you know, if you want to send your kid to a Catholic school, all that sort of stuff, fine. That That's great. But the bottom line is whether you send your kid to that school or not, the bottom line is the rest of the country is going to be, you know, moved forward by lots of kids who went to public school. And just because yeah. you things, that doesn't mean you can't support others. And always trying to, to be, you know, when you take the athlete, when you take the kid and you make them basically an example where it's like you take the poor kid and you put him in the rich kid's school. And now he's got to deal with the fact that he's the poor kid in the rich kid's school. And he's looked at as, you know, as a, as a freak there almost, it's like, you know, that sort of stuff. No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, at least that's where the playing field is the most even. And there needs to be, again, you can have all these charters. You can have all these sorts of things. I'm, I'm fine if that's what you want to do but i just i believe in the public school system that much and i you know that's where a majority of our future comes from and we need to nurture that yes i agree kurt what's it going to be like for lucha libre and wrestling in southern california when this ends do you think the crowds will come right back do you think people will be wary about going to the shows how do you think this is going to affect wrestling in the long run i'm concerned fredo and i were talking about this and we both have you know, pretty much made a pact that even if they do start doing shows and they say it's okay to come out and play, we're waiting a while. Same with, um, like, I don't, you know, who knows what happens with Cauliflower Alley next year, but we both said now we're not going to a Vegas hotel next year, even if they say it's safe. Um, I, I, it's funny, I've been reading you know, listening to podcasts and reading a bit on the 1918 Spanish flu. And it's amazing how many parallels, including Woodrow Wilson trying to downplay it, uh, you know, and make it sound like it, it wasn't such a big thing when he, one of the reasons behind it is he wanted to make sure uh, men enlisted in the military that we, we didn't get a backup in that. And, um, um, one one of the most out, outrageous things that I read was one of the newspapers in Pennsylvania, you know, had Woodrow Wilson's ear, or he had their ear, I should say, and they uh, printed a headline saying, you know, it's safe to go out and everything, but nobody believed it, but only because there was literally carriages going down the street 
telling people to bring out your dead. Um, and that's what that's what scares me about here is I like when they reopened here in California a few months ago, uh, my wife went to a restaurant that we like with some friends and she went in and not one person working there or sitting down was wearing a mask. It's like people are just naive. I think they're being naive. And that's what I worry about the Lucha too. I think they're going to start up too soon. Um, you know, we lost one, we lost a local luchador to the virus and, uh, you know, I hope, I hope he's the only one we lose, but it's spiking here in California. It's, it's crazy. Have you watched any of the wrestling on TV, any of the empty arena COVID era wrestling? Uh, well, I'm going to sound like the ultimate trader here, but, uh, I've only been watching the empty arena MMA. <laughs> no, you don't sound like a trader. And... You sound like a smart guy. <laughs> no, it's not the same to me. It's just, you know, not the same, but I got other things I can get into, you know? So <laughs> yeah. the one thing with tapes, you know, and a lot of, 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 you know, things at your disposal, you know, because it this is it is tough, you know, to, to not have that interaction there, you know. But and that's why I mean, you know, MMA is easy to me. And, you know, and I've I've been to enough boxing and MMA shows where nobody's there anyway. You know, not. <laughs> outside yes. Or and I should say I've been to a lot of wrestling shows where nobody's been there. So I should be used to it. <laughs> you, you know, with WWE and the present, I mean, their presentation sucks, in, you know, in, in, in many ways. AEW's got a little bit of a better one at Daly's Place, but still, you know, you miss that feel. It's like it's like having a, a rock and roll show or a, or, or any type of musical and, and nobody nobody there. It's just, it's, it's tough to get used to. It's a tough hill for me to try to climb to get over, but at least I have my fill of other things, you know, at my disposal here from the past, whether it be mid-atlantic or, or whatever it is that that stuff's available so my wound is always going to be eased over with some salve of, of that now you know if i had to come up in this generation and this was all i knew uh, i don't know I, I guess my only advice for those people would be i guess you know go and watch some 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 japan tapes i guess of, of undercard matches where things are usually silent so you could know what it's like to have a uh, relative silence during your matches but it's just a <laughs> polite applause. I, my solution, I think, and I mean, you, you know, uh, graphic design is so, uh, uh, you know, prolific these days. I mean, the stuff they do, uh, like with Fast and the Furious, all the special effects they have. My proposition is they should fill the stands of all the sports shows and wrestling shows. They should fill them with, uh, just uh, animatronic images of all the Sid and Marty Croft characters like H.R. Puff and stuff, Lidsville. <laughs> that would be money. Happy I would be if you had the entire cast of DC Follies, like on one yeah. side. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> With a run-in by Way Madam and Wayland Flowers. <laughs> That's the way. We got to have a hologram of, uh, of uh, Fred Willard there as well, too, as the bartender. Absolutely. Oh, what would it be without him? God rest his soul. <laughs> I, uh, you know, you bring up Wayland Flowers. Have you seen what Madonna looks like lately? No. Oh my God. She looks like Does she, she looks like Madam. Yeah, she looks like Wayland Flowers should have his hand up her ass. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know who her plastic surgeon is. 
she looks like madam <laughs> okay now i'm gonna have an image uh, in my head of waylon flowers with his hand up madonna's ass <laughs> It was probably, it was probably a, a few year span where she would have enjoyed that, but I don't know where she is today. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Kane didn't. What's that? Say that again, Mike. How did you know Big Daddy Kane didn't? Ah, Big Daddy Kane. That's, uh, did Big, those, see, I don't know that, this. Did Big Daddy Kane hook up with Madonna? Well, that was the whole thing with the sex book way back in the day because he was in there and he has always been, I believe, gentlemanly and said nothing took place, which is Hard to imagine, considering that Madonna would have had a uh, uh, some I would assume in, in Big Daddy Kane, surely. I remember reading a, uh, a bi- biography of this uh, gay porn star who who died really young of a drug overdose named, uh, oh, what was his name? Joey Stefano. And apparently he was uh, somebody that Madonna would call on to uh, pleasure her. Apparently she likes... Uh, she liked pretty boys who were gay for some reason. Oh, well, we're taking a, a turn. Once we mentioned Waylon Flowers, this show went completely off the rails. It doesn't get more bitching than this, I <laughs> must say. Hey, Kurt, <laughs> what about that poster I sent you on, on eBay the other day that obviously Vandal Drummond is listed as one of the names, which I was surprised by. It wasn't one of the names that you used with Incredibly Strange Wrestling. It was actually Vandal Drummond. What can you tell me about that poster? Oh, I, I I don't know who designed it, but one of the you know promoters of Incredibly Strange Wrestling is August Ragone, who uh, I didn't and I you know I knew him for a while when I, we were involved, but I didn't know until just a few years ago because my brother-in-law Anth he is a, a huge Godzilla fan, and August Ragone is uh, somebody who's very respected for his knowledge on. Japanese sci-fi and monster movies on Godzilla. I think he's even written some books, if I remember correctly. I, so I think he must have had a hand in that. And yes, I would be Vandal Drummond along with all my other silly gimmicks. You know, you know Vandal Drummond would get thrown in there too. <laughs> so I got to ask you, Kurt, this has been a big topic, and I'm going to ask some other people. We talked a little bit about it earlier. But I want to phrase this correctly. You've always been supportive of some of the ridiculous things that could happen in professional wrestling, maybe more than the average traditional fan. You've always appreciated classic wrestling, but you've always appreciated the silliness in wrestling from Titanus and O-Ring to some of the things in Incredibly Strange Wrestling or on the independent scene. What did you think when you heard the news about Joey Ryan recently? Because you've been somewhat of a supporter of what he had done previously were you surprised what did you think what were your thoughts uh you know it's it's funny you ask that well first off i want to say no i am no longer a joey ryan supporter i did think the gimmick was funny yes but it's official now joey ryan sucks his mother's pussy he cornholes his (laughs) pregnant brother and he fucks his pregnant sister and he is a whore he's so he's just He's fucking dead to, to me. No support. No love from Vandal. Um, as far as the surprise, it's funny you ask that because, you know, I, I'm not around a lot of people in wrestling these days. You know, I'm I'm around some of the old crowd. You know, we were talking. I know we had talked not that long ago. Jim Valley was talking about the misogyny in old school pro wrestling, of which there was a lot, which was 
I think one of the reasons I wasn't more gung ho to get like, you know, neck deep in it, in the, you know, the wrestling biz. But um, I wondered it, I, to myself, like, hey, I wonder if uh, now that there's a lot more women involved in the business, is there less of that stuff going on? And I guess the answer is no. No, I think one of the big differences is guys like Joey Ryan would attempt to, as they say now, be woke, would attempt to be the one to shame other people and say that, you know, misogyny has no place in the business. And, you know, the business is so much better than it used to be because these guys and an outdated way of thinking about everyone else and women, they're out of the business. Meanwhile, it turns out what his gimmick was, was very close to real life. You know, grab my yeah. dick. You know, that, I mean, that was really close to oh. real life. No, that that's a very good way of yeah, good way of putting it. And you know, it makes me me wonder how much stuff is going on that we don't know about. And it, it I mean, I'm I wonder if the wrestlers, you know, who uh, have bad attitudes towards women are focusing on the women in the business instead of the women who are fans now. And you know, I know, I know, I'm in the minority of the old school fans, but I always detested the term uh, "ring rat." I just, you know, and and the wrestlers I know who used it, they didn't use it fondly. They they were snarky and just like, oh yeah, that slut, that ring rat. Meanwhile, they'd sleep with like just <laughs> whoever, and <laughs> I don't know. Mike, what were your thoughts when you heard about Joey Ryan going down? Maybe I shouldn't put it that way. What, is, what were your thoughts when you heard about Joey Ryan's uh, accusations? Um, I never, he was never a personality and a character that I much cared for anyway. And I thought a lot of how he came across was that fake wokeness. And I thought he was frankly full of shit. And I had no reason to really say that other than a gut instinct, but I just didn't bother with him. And being on the East Coast, I really didn't have to bother with him anyway. So all of this happening doesn't make me happy, obviously, because of, of what has taken place. But these are whispers that have been around for a long time. And I just, you know, I was I cut out there for a little bit. So I'm not sure how much you guys had talked about when it comes to all of this stuff that's going on now. But, you know, water is going to find its lowest point. And we have moved from maybe a lot of alpha males, a lot of guys used to get in their way, you know, maybe that's, you know, if you're going to look down at quote unquote old school wrestling that way and, and look down on those locker rooms, you know, that's one of the reasons you can do that. But now, you know, it, now you're just exchanging the athlete for the, maybe the gamer or the person that wasn't that popular in school and got into wrestling and maybe has got a little success and, and now is trying to figure out a way where they can, you know, all that, they didn't get the girl before, but man, I can farm this one out now who's 16 or 17 or whatever at the wrestling school, which is bizarre to me too. I mean, but that's a, probably a subject for a different day, but it's like, you know, these types of guys look, it, it's just, it's nature and it's not a good part of it, but like, you can't look at the old locker. Everything's changed. No, it hasn't. You know, it just takes on a different mm -hmm. form. Those evils are there that, 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 that type of stuff is there. It just, it just takes on a different face. And that's what I think is happening with a lot of these cases. Now, when you look at some of these guys and you go like these fucking guys, but it's like, you know, that's, I think what it is as opposed to before where you had, maybe it was looked at and, and incorrectly too. Cause it wasn't just like the alpha guys, but it's like, you know, that, that mentality, how everything's so different now we're all kumbaya bullshit. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I don't know if you would cut out when I said this, but yeah, I, 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 I'm wondering if they're focusing on women in the business as opposed to the women in the audience now. You know? Yeah, of course, because there, there are yes. less women in the yeah. audience than ever before. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, there were women that used to actually – I mean, Kurt, you were in Portland. There were women yeah. that used to actually come to wrestling specifically to meet up with the wrestlers and get yep, with the and wrestlers. they were gorgeous. <laughs> they were gorgeous too. That fan base is And the gone. wrestler the wrestlers should be damn thankful for them. I yeah. mean like when I when I heard when I remember Jerry Gray telling that story on one of the six oh fives about Billy Jack throwing uh one of the women out of the van like in, in the cold because she didn't want to fuck him. I just I you know yeah, I, yeah, that that's what that's that's the kind of stuff that turned me off of wrestling, you know, at one point. Yeah, unfortunately, there was a lot. Of, I mean, that's the thing. Yeah, I kind of have to weigh every territory had women who yes. willingly went to the arenas looking to meet up with the wrestlers and wrestlers who met up with them and they had consensual flings, and that was that. Then you had some guys that treated the women like it was something they earned. And if you didn't do what they wanted, you know, that in some cases, that may be the best scenario, getting kicked out. And the, the promoters usually took care of the wrestlers in that sense. I, I did I did witness Chris Adams across from across the arena in Salem arena. It was more like a movie theater. I saw him. I saw him smack the shit out of uh, a, a woman and. Uh, Sandy Bar just got in the way and tried to talk the girl down. As as, as, as it, it seemed like he was just trying to, like, oh, let's not let this get out of hand. Let's, you know, I don't know if he said squat to Adams or not, but well, remember, you know. Jim Valley interviewed Tony Bourne on his Portland podcast, and she talked about the abuse she suffered at the hands of Buddy Rose, Playboy Buddy Rose. And that I I, I want to say it was Sandy Barr also. She went to Sandy Barr, and Sandy Barr's attitude was, you knew what you signed up for. You knew what this was. Oh, Jesus. Not, you know, this is horrible. Let's get you some help. Let's get you away from him. Let's, you know, get you in a new place. Let me help you out. I know your family. None of that. It was, you know what you signed up for. And maybe I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, Jim talked about it on the 605 a while back. There was a lot of that attitude. Yeah, and I my my assumption is that's the way it was in most promotions. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, Jimmy Snuka. Yeah, I, I can't sta- Jimmy- I can't state that for a fact. That's just no, my but I mean, look look at yeah. what we know. Jimmy Snuka murdered yeah. a girl, and before that, he yes. got the crap out of her, and <laughs> he was still kept around they, as the they- black guy. They wanted to protect the product, and more than anything, I I remember one of the one of the things I even after everything I've heard about in the biz that shocked me. I can't remember the actual date of the interview, but I remember it was right after uh, one of the Von Brauners passed away a few years back, and uh, Dave Meltzer was interviewing Terry Funk, and they were talking about Bruiser Brody, and um, you know the whole situation of his murder. And Terry Funk actually said, "said Well, I I know you know that they were covering it up to protect their business, and um, I don't know, maybe if it was my business, I would have done the same thing." And that kind of made my jaw hit the floor. Wow! To actually admit uh, on on a public forum that, like, oh yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd cover up a murder to save my business. Um, <laughs> 
Meanwhile, I mean, funny enough, it ended up destroying their business in a lot of ways. Yes. Oh, yeah, totally, totally. I mean, they he might have gotten off legally, but <laughs> the business was not the same in Puerto Rico after that. What were you going to say? Not even Tom Ernesto could save it. Well, Tom Ernesto was done by that point. He, he didn't. I know. <laughs> That's just a joke. <laughs> what were you going to say? He would have brought the monster in. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, you were going to I was just going to say, you know, I mean, like, just society as a whole. I mean, look at it's Jeffrey Epstein and, and Harvey Weinstein. I mean, you know, look at a name like Mira Sorvino that thought she was getting blackballed because of, of Harvey, Harvey Weinstein. Weinstein. And you yeah. think about the, the level of star, you know, if you were from that era of in who her father was and everything, and if he was able to put his thumb on her. And you think about just how many people, the Matt Lauer situation at NBC and just on yeah. and on and forever and ever, amen, where it's like, you know, it be, when it hits our you know, our snow globe that we love our wrestling, you know, it just, when it gets all shooken up and you're reminded of this stuff that takes place, it's just, it's awful. But then it's even worse when you put yourself back outside of again, and you think about how often this is taking place in all forms of, in all walks of life. And it's just, it is, it's awful. It's just awful. And for this to, to rock wrestling in the way that it has, you know, it was, it was a long time coming with a lot of these names. And you th- think about too, it's like, how many people look the other way on Bob Sweet Tan, who may have known some? How many people look the other yeah. way on a lot of these monsters from wrestling history that we, you know, we cherished them because of what they did in the ring? But boy, were they pieces of garbage outside of it. Absolutely. Oh, I, I, man, it's so weird because I remember in 1983 watching every Dynamite Kid match I could and just, just, uh, he was it to me. And now I try to watch those matches and I just, I don't know. I feel conflicted now, just knowing the type of sociopath he was. Uh, not just to women, but to you know, pretty much everybody, even people who who uh, were loyal to him. Well, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, Mr. Wrestling Two just passed away, and yes. without overtly saying it on the show, because like I felt weird about it, and and it's a hard thing to explain. But if you notice, a few years ago, I went from saying I voted for him for the Observer Hall of Fame to saying. I just couldn't vote for him anymore. And the reason was I found out about his bust for being a part of a gang rape of a teenager in Hawaii in 19, I think from 1955. And I just, that got stuck in my head. I I look at him a different way now. And I understand, you know, I've heard the defenses. He was a kid. He didn't know better. He never had any Mm. other incidents the rest of his life, this and that, but it affected the way I thought about it. And, Enough people got wind of it, and you know, a lot of people first found out about it through the Super Podcast that Meltzer had to report about it. But like when Rocky Johnson died, there were no, there was nothing in the Observer about Rocky getting busted for rape. There was nothing. Oh, in yes. there, there was nothing in there That's about true. Rocky Johnson. You know, when he got in trouble for inviting a fourteen year old to play strip poker in Florida in whatever two thousand three or whatever it was. I'll, I'll find the uh, article here. Yikes! But I mean, oh, God. but that's. That's the point. It's like there are certain guys you don't want to look at that way. You know, the Rocky Johnson bios were all, you know, oh, my God, he was an African-American superstar in all these different territories, and he threw a great drop kick. But no one ever said, you know what? He was also a really shitty human being who beat his wife, exactly. who walked out on and his I, first I, family, who, who got busted for rape in 87. 
Um, you know, and again, the strip poker with a 14 year old girl. Oh my God. My God. I, I will. And, and that's, that should be, that should have been reported. Uh, I mean, in the observer and all of them. And, you know, and I always hate this. You have to separate the artist from the person. You know, I know uh, art is subjective. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know, if I saw this painting and I thought, hey, that's a pretty neat painting. And some way one told me, oh, John Wayne Gacy painted it. I'd get this wave of nausea that would say, oh, fuck that, you know, trash it. I don't care, you know. Well, look at who the gatekeepers are of, of you know, wrestling journalism and whether that, you know, any of their interests got in the way of, of mentioning these things because I brought up the Mr. Wrestling 2 thing on Observer Live and I was wondering, okay, who's going to say anything about this? Will there be anything said about this in most of the mainstream, you know, most of your everyday uh, sites and, and people that you would go to for news? Nobody mentioned it. Rocky Johnson, same way. It's like, wait a second, you know, and I know this was a long time ago, but if you're telling the whole story, you're going to bring up the fact that Johnny Walker was in Hawaii for this period of his life. And you think that that might be a pretty important detail to point out that he was on a registry for the rest of his life. And even if he was uh, just happened to be there and not even an active participant in whatever took place, that he was certainly old enough to know better and, and, and could have done something. And and did fact, not. Do you think it's? Do you think it's kind of a new journalism trend? Because they used to they used to generally spill the beans on everything when somebody passed away in the past. I mean, Buddy Rose, they left almost uh, no stone unturned with him. Well, yeah, exactly, and that depends on who it is. And I don't know, you know, with Rocky Johnson, there was so much stuff, and it's not like you know you had to be completely deep on the inside. I mean, these were things that were printed in like newspapers and such that like uh, nothing, nothing. This is all because yeah. of, because of why, because you don't want to anger his, his son because he, why, why would, why him? And yet you completely, you would, you just completely destroy other people and you completely rip the lid. I mean, if new Jack were to drop dead tomorrow, you know, the dissection on everything that that dude ever did his entire life. And he's a bad example, obviously, uh, maybe <laughs> than, than others. But it's like, you know, if it's somebody else, do they do they face the fine tooth comb or do we hand wave of some of this stuff? And we talk about that sweet, sweet dropkick or that 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 awesome photo op with with Governor Carter. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, my first uh confliction when when watching a wrestler was when the Jimmy Snuka thing happened because you know that that didn't really go national in the northeast it got some press but here he was a baby face out here and I'm watching him uh, at the sports arena and just seeing all these people cheering him and you know and yeah, and, and hearing people in the know saying, "Oh, well, you got to appreciate his craft and that kind of thing," and I, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't watch it. I, mean, I could watch it, but I couldn't fully appreciate it. I'll tell you what, guys. Let's continue this conversation in a second. And I got these Rocky Johnson articles actually, so I'll tell you verbatim what it was, so I don't get anything wrong. But let me add someone to the call for this conversation. Once again, I'm typing into the wrong keyboard. Here we go. <laughs> this is the problem with having a two-computer system now. We are adding this person as we speak. It is dialing him, allegedly. It is calling his home residence in South Florida. We'll find out how he's doing. Boy. 
There he is, Howard Baum. Welcome to opening day Star Wars Extra Innings. You're on the line with Vandal Drummond himself, Kurt Brown, as well as Mike Sempervivi. How are you, Howard? Ah, uh, tremendous. Good to meet you, Mike. And uh, my boy Vandal. What more can I say? Uh, Howard, from one hot spot state to another. <laughs> I am so glad in the communications we have that you are being careful <laughs> and taking care of yourself. Oh, Florida will have a COVID contest with you anytime, buddy. Uh, oh, it looks like they're going to – we, I guess, our state just upended New York in the most active cases. And uh sounds like Florida is not far behind, and we're – yeah, yeah. So I, I'm just glad take, you're – Florida is not going to take this lying down. <laughs> oh dear, that's a that's an odd way to be happy. It. Uh, We're not going to be happy until people are stacked in the streets. Well, I was telling the guys earlier. I was reading stuff on the Spanish flu, and there was all these parallels. One of them being a Pennsylvania newspaper tried to downplay it, saying everything's safe, but people didn't listen because there were literally carriages going down the streets telling people to bring out their dead. <laughs> Ah, right. And I almost think that's what it's going to take. I hate to say Right. You know, speaking of Philly and COVID, um, I happen to come across an Angel Amoroso video on the Facebook today. It's amazing how there's some kind of parallel behind, like, the wrestling mentality, people who are in the business, and, like, these conspiracy theories and whatnot. And so she was out there in Philadelphia where Rocky ran up the stairs and all that. And everyone's hanging around. <laughs> and they're like, she went up to talk to the senator. Like, you know, everyone's lollygagging around. So I made a comment on her page. I said, hey, you guys ought to do the wave. Oh, you already are. <laughs> Burn. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> hey, before we get too far, guys, and I'm so glad to be on Vandal because – on with Vandal because – been a long day of waiting. I'm like Jimmy Page at the Atlantic 40th reunion. I thought I was going to go on at 11, and I've been drinking all yeah. day. And then by the time I go on, it's either going to be a train wreck. But I'm feeling good. But I, I, sorry about this, Brian. But uh, you might have been following this on social media and on various news sites. I know the Observer covered this last week, but. Um, I'm in the middle of a bit of an imbroglio right now. Imbroglio, imbroglio. It's neither here nor there. <laughs> tomato, tomato. Um, so my lawyer drew this up for me, and in light of recent events, I feel compelled to read this at the top of my segment. And then if you don't want to use it and you can't, then I understand going forward. Okay. Okay, so you're ready? You sign off on this, Brian? I, I don't know if I sign off on it, but I'm perfectly willing to have you Read whatever your attorney, obviously an esteemed okay. member of the bar in South Florida, whatever he prepared for you. Today is um, on this day of the royal fabulous Moolah's birthday, her 97th birthday, <laughs> uh, 2020. Okay. <clears throat> this is Howard Baum speaking. Due to prevailing social attitudes as well as an increase in my own personal understanding as a result of meeting with the American Hyperhidrosis Foundation, I would like to announce that I can no longer, in good conscience, continue to voice the character of Clammy Hands Ken Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> I sincerely, guys, please, this is for legal purposes, 
I sincerely apologize for any unintended consequences and or damage done in the past by my frivolous portrayal. On behalf of myself and dry-handed people everywhere, I thank you. <laughs> well, how would I could so certainly... So if that meets your approval, Brian, I, I think that we can continue. I can certainly appreciate the sentiment. However, it was nice having you on the Super Podcast, and I wish you the best. <laughs> future endeavors. I wish you well in your future endeavors. Wow. <laughs> Have the coalition of people with clammy hands really been, been <laughs> offering a boycott of the 605? <laughs> Well, you know, it's kind of under the same heading of why you're not going to hear from pre-op Terry Funk or Princess Little Teats anymore. <laughs> well, I can't remember if I put this, if I, if I put this on the uh, Breaking Bowdrin or the Mothership page, but I found some old psychedelic-like book called The Glue Factory, one of these pulp paperback books, and the author's name is David Meltzer, and I thought <laughs> – there's the perfect character for 605 is Bohemian Dave Meltzer. <laughs> you know, one of the best characters I never got to do, and I'm going to give up the person who suggested it. Dolph Ramsor one day had an idea, and it's so funny, but it would need the right person to do it. Because you'd have to be a Bowie fan, but you'd also have to know wrestling. The character, right. the character was Hunky Dory Funk. <laughs> ah, ah, ah. Oh, that's good. Oh, and there's I so like much that. potential like there, that. but you'd have to, you, you'd really have to know your stuff to be able to pull that off. Uh, that's, when that's you're a guy, clever. other guys check you out. <laughs> hey, uh, Howard, we were just actually, you know, funny enough. When you were added to the call, we were discussing some of the recent scandals in and around wrestling and how, you know, it kind of, there's always been these scandals. It's just they didn't always get out. We talked a little bit about Johnny Walker. We were actually just talking about Rocky Johnson, uh, and I pulled up some newspaper articles. How aware were you? Because, I mean, you're someone who was around wrestling in Florida for years. Rocky lived in Florida. Rocky wrestled in Florida before that. How aware were you of the Rocky Johnson scandals at different points for lack of a better term um, the, as far as that's concerned the only awareness i had of that was around 93 when i saw something in the observer when he was making like a late life comeback in memphis and he got into trouble with some kind of underage girl and i don't know the particulars about that um to me my rocky johnson tale is just uh simply I go on vibes of when I meet people when I'm, I don't need to have an in-depth conversation because they don't know me. I'm not going to do a shoot interview with them and they're not, I'm not going to learn their entire life story. So I like to be on a fly on the wall and see how they interact with other people. And one night, Bobby Rogers ran a show, which was the most inexplicable show, had to be a paid show. And it was at this little um, like rec room at a, like senior center condo situation in Fort Lauderdale. I don't know how many people they possibly could have fit in there. I don't know what anybody was thinking, but a bunch of local guys, plus Zach Myers, who was local at the time, Terry Funk and Rocky Johnson. So I didn't even venture out by the ring once. I just wanted to sit there and soak up Terry Funk all night. And I did. And, um, but Rocky Johnson was also there. And I remember one of the younger guys comes up to Rocky Johnson and he goes, 
hey, you know, the black nature boy, Scoot Johnson, is using uh, the rock bottom. And uh, Rocky Johnson's like, oh, we're going to put an end to that. And this is 2001, <laughs> so rock is only like the hottest fucking thing yeah. that ever landed since Muhammad Ali or Bruce Lee. And he's like, here's Rocky Johnson's, you know, like he's going to clamp down on Scoot, the nature boy, the black nature boy. And it just his overall vibe. He didn't seem nice. He didn't seem nice. And um, this is a personal story from one of my favorite wrestlers. And I'm not going to give any hints at all. But I said, you know, you always see on these WWE, when Rocky Johnson died, like what a gentleman he was. And Vince McMahon was talking about what a gentleman he was and all this stuff. I'm like, but when I was around him, he didn't seem like the nicest guy. And this guy it was a big deal in the wrestling world, one of my personal favorites. And it, and I go, and I didn't know him that well, but I was grilling him good. And I go, what's the truth about him? Because I've never been around him and seen him in a good mood. And he hesitated, and he's like, I could see him do the calculus in his head, like, I don't know this guy. Who's he going to talk to? Well, what the fuck? And he goes, he's kind of a dick. <laughs> <laughs> so... That's my Rocky Johnson tale. I will say he was a hell of a worker. I will say best dropkick in the business. Um, and that's all I can say. For his time in the 70s, he was amazing. He was – he did more than Mil Mascaris, who is known as – Mil Mascaris is supposed to be the high flyer, but Rocky Johnson was way more agile. I defy anyone to come up with anyone more agile in the 70s. I'm shocked that Morocco called him a dick. <laughs> <laughs> Now, wait a minute. Now, wait just a second. Donnie, now, please. hang on. No, that's not a that denial. Is, can, that wasn't can a denial neither, can, anyway. I cannot verify that in one way, shape, or form. One day when my list of top 10 wrestlers comes out, favorites, he is in my top 10 of favorites. So if you ever hear me talking about my top 10 favorites, he's in there. Well, please check with <laughs> but your I lawyer. confirm or deny that that is Don Morocco. Check with your attorney about when you can submit this list because I want to review it. Um, hey, well, well, there's still a chance he's going to acknowledge me. I don't want to piss him off. Here's, here's a couple stories. These are from newspapers. This one, now I expected you to mention this one, not the problems at Memphis. And we'll talk about that in a second. It was actually a little bit earlier than you said. But this is from the Sun Sentinel. This is from October 17th, 2000. The headline is Troubling Matter, excuse me, Troubling Matters Needful Airing from the Town of Davie. Now, Davie's a little bit north of where you are, Howard, correct? Very, I mean, 20 minutes away, yeah, 20 minutes west inland, yeah. It's, it's kind of a rednecky area, but then they have like a ritzy area within that. Here's the article. Not redneck. Yeah, I shouldn't say that. It's 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 rural. They have horses and everything. Strike the redneck. No, that's yeah, that's further <laughs> north in Florida. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, no. It's south. We're South Florida. I'm in Hollywood, which is halfway between Lauderdale and Miami. And then if you just go 20 minutes west inland, uh, that's Davie. And it's it's just part of Fort Lauderdale. It's just it's. No, no, no. I was saying the rednecks Fort are further north. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Thank you. Well, here's the article, again, 2000. Something fishy is going on in the town of Davie. It's actually two fishy things, but appears they may be related. Two weeks ago, acting town administrator Tom Willie, uh, W-I-L-L, yeah, Tom Willie, 
said he had become aware of a practice in which town sports director Mark Dornicker was given $37,000 in checks during the previous year, out of which he paid sport of, uh, out of which he paid sports officials, excuse me, in cash. While no one has accused Dornmaker of any impropriety, Willie and Mayor Harvey Venus. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, no, Harry Venus, excuse me, not Harvey Venus. <laughs> right, right, right. Harry Venus expressed concern about the lack of record keeping, and Willie blamed Parks and Recreational Director Sharon Kent for not catching the problem. The matter is still under investigation. Kent's name has surfaced in connection with another and possibly more serious investigation based on accounts from 13 current and former town employees. She began looking into the activities of Rocky Johnson, a friend and business partner of Venus. Johnson, a former professional wrestler, had been hired to work part-time as an activities leader and weight room supervisor at Pine Island Community Center. The accusations against Johnson, if true, Paint a disturbing picture. Soliciting personal business on town... On ta- I can't speak all of a sudden tonight. On town time. <laughs> not working scheduled hours. Theft of town property. Sexual activity in a back room at the center. Unwanted oh, groping wow. of female employees. Illicit discussions of sexual anatomy in front of children. Even an invitation hey, huh. to a 12-year-old girl to play strip poker. Johnson... Uh who denies the accusations, has been suspended with pay. All town records of his activities have been turned over to police. Uh, It goes on. A lot of this is about this Tom, or not Tom, this Harry Willie guy. Uh, Depending on whom you listen into or which way your suspicions run. This is such a weirdly worded article. (laughs) Either Johnson is in Florida, trouble. baby. We don't speak English down here. Either Johnson is in trouble only because Kent and Dornicker used to used him to shift attention. See, they're trying to shift it away from Rocky. Let me see if there's another one here. Uh, Dave, where is Harry Penis today? <laughs> Davey Mayer. Okay, funny you should funny you should mention that on such a respectful note. He died about two weeks ago. Oh, rest in peace, Harry. <laughs> I don't know of what, but he just died. And it, it, Harry Venus, oddly enough. He was like one of those guys that would they would always have wrestling at the Davy Rodeo Arena, and he would always end up working against somebody on the show, like often in the main event. And it would be kind of a tag match setup, kind of a thing where he comes in at the last minute, gets a fluke pin or whatever. But he was um, a peripheral character in Davy Wrestling, just about every time the local groups ran there. So he had a connection with wrestling. And yeah, and you know, at 2000 was a was a ridiculous year for me. So I was, but I I now I vaguely remember all that stuff, the community center and the reading about that stuff and everything. Because in those days, believe it or not, we still got the newspaper. Yeah, man, <laughs> such a thing. And I was, you know, yeah, I definitely do remember that. Well, it's it's funny because of, you know one of the things I'm doing, you know, being hunkered down inside a lot is going through the newspaper.com archives. And it's funny, I'll find stories on wrestling from the 1800s, and it seemed like there was always a lot of shiftiness in the business, one including a wrestler being poisoned uh, in order to fix uh, fix about um, a wrestler being murdered after somebody found out he threw a match. And... uh, (laughs) 
And then yeah, again, you, you know, know, I, I hung, I hung around Dr. Jerry Graham, who was no angel, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, I, you know, he, he, did, he, he did a lot of loathsome stuff and yet I loved the guy, but you know, so just to show you know, there's, there's some hypocrisy even in, in my, uh, my well, uh, side of the yard. You know, if you were going to throw out every racist and child molester and all their past work, and then you could take wrestling and music and throw them up in a big ball and, and forget films. about it. Hey, don't forget film. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think it's entertainment in general and politics yeah. in general. It's you get power yeah. and you you get. Uh, I think it's hard not to get abusive. And it's like I, I firmly believe art is subjective and it's different for different people. I know people who can watch Chris Benoit matches and be okay with it, you know, not and not trying to stick up for what he did. You know, I still have problems with it, but that's just me, you know. And and like we were saying earlier, I I couldn't I, I couldn't enjoy Jimmy Snook matches knowing what what went on. And this was at the time that it happened in the eighties. Here are some of the charges against Rocky in this occurrence. He grabbed the female camp employee twice on the buttocks. The same employee told Kent that Johnson had also made comments such as, why don't you take off your shirt to see what you look like in a bathing suit? He spent time with women not employed by the town in a room at the community center, napping, kissing, and getting massages. He twice, he twice complained about being interrupted while spending time alone with a woman. In one incident, a 16-year-old female employee walked in on Johnson receiving a massage from a woman straddling his back. On separate occasion, Johnson allegedly complained to another employee that he was interrupted by a male employee while he was receiving oral sex. He asked a 12-year-old wow. girl to play strip poker. He wore a tank Jeez. top in front of children bearing the word puta, a Spanish word meaning prostitute. A parent complained about the shirt. He made a comment in front of a group of children about the size of his penis. He promised children that his son, mm. The Rock, would visit the community center. The Rock did not appear during the summer. <laughs> he left children oh. supervised by only a counselor in training while they wrestled and boxed, and several children suffered injuries. So, obviously, Rocky Johnson had this incident, but I think the more troubling one you alluded to earlier, Howard, this is from... The Jackson Sun, Jackson, Tennessee, October 30th, 1987. Uh. Professional wrestler... Uh, I'm trying to zoom in on this a little. Professional wrestler Rocky Soulman Johnson was bound over Thursday to the Madison County Grand Jury on charges he raped a 19-year-old local woman. General Sessions Judge Robert Holt reduced the original charge Thursday against Johnson of Nashville from aggravated rape to rape stating probable cause exists only for a count of rape. Johnson, who is on Sunday night's wrestling card at the Jackson Coliseum, has pleaded not guilty to the charge. He told authorities the woman wanted to have sex with him. Authorities arrested Johnson September 21st after the woman told deputies she was raped inside a car in a rural area of Madison County. During the preliminary hearing, the woman testified she couldn't actually remember the rape. Nevertheless, she said, she believes Johnson committed it because, quote, he was the only one I was with. The woman testified she had gone to a local wrestling match 
and had talked to Johnson about becoming a wrestler. Quote, I was going to become a professional wrestler, and he was going to teach me how to take the falls, she said. Later, Johnson offered to give her a ride home as a birthday present, she said. During the trip home, they made various stops, drank vodka, and talked about wrestling, she said. Johnson never forced her to drink the vodka or touched her until after she passed out, she said. The next thing she knew, she woke up in HCA Regional Hospital of Jackson with several cuts and scratches. Initially, the woman told officers another man raped her and that up to four men were involved. She said she made that mistake because she was still, quote, intoxicated at the time I gave the report. Sergeant David Wolfork, a sheriff's investigator, testified that the woman appeared to be very withdrawn during the initial interview. Johnson told authorities a different story. According to his statement, the woman's family wanted him to attend her birthday party. At some point, the woman asked Rocky Johnson to go with her to get something to drink, Johnson told authorities. Shortly after, he told authorities, the woman started to fondle him and performed oral sex on him despite his protests that he was married. To me, that last paragraph says it all. <laughs> his defense... Yeah. <laughs> His Think about what, wrestler, what she, wrestler has ever said, I'm a married man. <laughs> his defense is she forced herself, excuse me, the woman started to fondle him and performed oral sex on him despite his protest that he was married. So <laughs> she starts giving him oral sex. He's like, no, no, you can't. I'm married. You don't do this. Please, no. Such a, such a valiant attempt. Yeah. <laughs> so again, you know, to go back to the initial conversation, the Johnny Walker stuff got in all the stories. It couldn't be ignored. Greg Oliver at Slam Wrestling, who does a great job, he had to update that story and include it because too many people were saying, how could you not include wow. this? The Rocky Johnson stuff wasn't included in any of his bios. And Rocky, again, yeah. he screwed over Scott Teal. He screwed over Greg Oliver. Apparently, there are other stories of him screwing people over. There are stories that I've heard about marital abuse. He walked out on his first family. He got busted for rape in 87. He asked a 12-year-old to play strip poker in 2000, amongst other things that happened in Davie, Florida. None of this got in his obituary, though, in his wrestling obituary, not even the you know widespread obituary that would appear in a newspaper. Yeah. You know what happens in wrestling is that everybody's friends with everybody, so they, don't wanna, they can't put the truth in there. Yeah. And it's it's and that's too bad because it's like it, all it does, especially with this stuff, that it, it's not like it's unknown. It's not like it wasn't in actual newspapers and registries and things like that, where all you're doing is just more of a disservice because then people ask the question, right. why wasn't this in the bio to begin with or why wasn't this in? And again, if it's Absolutely. only going to be one paragraph, you don't necessarily put that in there. If you're writing a story, as most people in wrestling would do in these types of cases, because it gives them a chance to, I don't want to say show off, but I mean, look, what they do on Slam Wrestling and some of the things, Dave, I mean, the books he's done because nobody was writing the stories of these people. Nobody cared enough to. And Dave and people, there were people out there that would. But when you exclude this stuff, whether it's just, you know, whether it has been proven false or is still up in the air or whatever, if you're going to write the whole story, then write the whole damn story. Why leave this glaring stuff out when you know people are going to pick it up and then ask you why? Absolutely. Especially in this day and age. And if you're going to yeah. fancy yourself a journalist, as these guys do, and I'm friends with most of them, if not all of them, um, 
I have a low-key feud with Meltzer, I think, but no big deal. But if you're gonna fancy yourself, if you're gonna fan, who don't I? Who don't? Who don't? Who don't? Who don't, who don't I have a low-key feud with? But um, I don't know if either of us are aware of it, but nonetheless, <laughs> it's, a passive, it's a passive feud. I don't know if it's real. I don't know if it's in my head. I don't know. I don't. Whatever. He's you fine. Whatever. You go up to Dave and say, "Bless your heart." It's fine, it's fine. No big deal. But what I'm saying is, I mean, if you're going to be a journalist, that's like, you know, that's like me editing a boob out of a photo. If it's in the photo, it's in the photo. Like, it's it's, it's there. I like that. I you like know? that comparison. I love that you comparison. Know where, you know where my mind goes immediately. Journalistic integrity and boobs. I like it. Exactly. That's my trigger. <laughs> Howard, what did you think about everything that went down with Joey Ryan and everyone, you know, got caught up in that? Well, not caught up, but everyone got exposed. Everyone that got well, exposed. Um, Let me try to phrase this correctly. Everyone that got exposed <laughs> with the whole speaking out thing. Well, you know, like I said before, what if they really delve back into wrestling's past? I mean, they're going to cancel everybody who is anybody. You can't. Jimmy Page was with 14-year-old girls. Mick Jagger, David Bowie. I mean, like, big surprise, these independent nobodies are sleazy, you know, throwbacks to what they think wrestling was, like rats and good times. Um, I'm not that tuned into the new stuff, but it's just par for the course of these guys who run schools and take advantage and whatnot. I mean, everyone just looks like a young shapeless form to me. I don't, I can't put names to faces or anything, but I'm aware of Joey Ryan and all that. I think it's, I think this is an era of tremendous karma, no matter what your poison is, politics, religion, social upheaval. It's, it's a time of uh, rejiggering. It's going to be like no more abuse, no more racism, and nothing's going to be tolerated anymore. The question is how far does it go back? Cause then everyone in the world's guilty. As far as the current stuff, I'm not really that tuned in, but I it's cool to sit there and watch all the karma. I wish I was more emotionally invested. I wish they were getting some of my guys from my era. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Joey Ryan even shaved, though. How funny is that? He shaved for his <laughs> apology so video. <laughs> oh, my God. I, 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 that's not me anymore. That was a, uh, that was a <laughs> character mustache. But Just that when I feel Joey Ryan was a bad man, like Snidely Whiplash. <laughs> Think of all the stuff <laughs> Snidely Whiplash has done, and nobody talks about him. <laughs> I, just, I didn't think anything could top, like, you know, taking a picture of your notes and then putting that out there because you always look like a fool doing that, no matter what you think you're trying to accomplish with your explanation. And then. Now we get the video form of it with the Joey Ryans and in those like that, where it's just Mike Quackenbush who look, Mike Quackenbush uh, <laughs> has got a reputation and a flair for the dramatic. And unfortunately, whether he intended on meaning it or not, that's exactly how I think most people took his manifesto that he put out there answering allegations against him and Chikara and his past history and all that sort of stuff. People took it as, Hey, look, another piece of quack performance art. And it's like, I don't know if this, you know, 
not like you know wrestlers are the you know some cases the 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 brightest bulbs out there but and not everybody can afford a pr guy but like you know somebody you know maybe (laughs) there needs to be some checks and balances for some of these people before you put that out there and make your situation worse my favorite was the david Mm. star one where he got accused of rape and then other stories started coming out and then he released a statement that he said I wrote this a few weeks ago while reflecting on things, so I'll release it right now. It's like, wait a minute. So you had in your pocket an apology for weeks that you just waited to release until right now. Funny how that works. (laughs) I'll tell you where I think this comes from. It's, you know, wrestling used to have a very rape and pillage mentality, and even when I would do small shows on the road, um... You know, I might be working with Howard Brody's women's group, and it was all girls, but I'm hanging out with the refs and and crew and whatnot, and we go to the local bars, and they're like trying to pick up every girl in the place just because they're in the wrestling business per se, and every and I think that's the mentality, and that was like loosely being in the wrestling business. Imagine guys who are really in it, and I think a lot of these young guys idolize and romanticize what wrestling used to be. And they talk about making towns and whatnot. They can't really say making TV. They can't really say spot show because every show is a spot show for them, etc. But what they do know is that they want rats. And I remember there was a guy who was part of a tag team down here on the small, small, small circuit. And we're hanging out at the bar after, and there's like five of us there and like one girl, one girl is there and he assumes that it's a rat for him. And he's in gimmick. He's in full gimmick. Oh, geez. Like, this is like five years oh, ago. We like worked one of those guys. Remember how there's always that guy, that, re- that you know, lower rung wrestler who would be dressed in his sweats, but still wear his wrestling boots to the bar. Just so well, yeah, would he would. I don't want to like uh, <laughs> give the guy away, but he was like part of a particular gimmick and he wore this pin on his shirt that was part of that gimmick. And like, he's, he, what are you doing in his head? Is ro- no, those guys are actually cool. Those guys are really <laughs> cool in my, in my interactions I've had with them. Just to get, you said a pin and I'm thinking a college pin. And I went right to them. <laughs> no, it was, uh, it was a Russian gimmick for you local South Florida guys. A local Russian tag team gimmick. I don't know if the guys were Russian or what, but he was working that. And he, then there was one girl there who was already girlfriends with a wrestler who had a better career than this guy, I might add. And it was just five of us hanging out. And I mean, it was not a scene. It was not a busy night. He struts in there like it's Ric Flair coming into the Marriott in 1987. And he sees the one attractive girl in there. And he's like, hey, and he thinks he's going to get laid because he worked in front of 25 people at a rec center. And I think these guys are romanticizing shit because the guys back then did that. And it was real, but none of that happens now. Well, the thing exactly. is, two, two, two things, though, Howard. You got to remember, we talked about this before. These guys now pretend like they're woke. You know, oh, we're not like uh. the toxic wrestling industry of the past. We treat everyone with respect. We share our locker yeah. rooms with the women. We're nothing like that. And the other thing is, let me remind everyone, Joey Ryan, in his initial statement that he released uh, before he went radio silent for a few weeks before he rehearsed his uh, YouTube video in his kitchen. He said that part of the reason for this was he got used to the rock and roll lifestyle. 
of being mm-hmm. Joey Ryan, which is just so stupid. <laughs> right. Anyway, I didn't mean I cut off someone and I don't even know who. No, that's the deal. These guys are like, oh, making towns and shit. They want to buy into, you know, they, they want to act like they're on a circuit. They're having real life cosplay. Absolutely. Oh, the funniest, the funniest memory I have of, <laughs> of that, that sort of thing is I remember working one of Carl Lauer's shows here in SoCal. And what it was, was it was at a high school and it was one of these booster things for the football team. So the place was sold out. And who's coming to see wrestling for an event that is uh, uh, for the football team? It's going to be all the high school kids, including all the hot-looking high school girls. And so there's Pistol Pete and Budokan trying to impress the security guards there, saying, saying, oh, yeah, these are all the arena rats that show up at all the arenas. They said, oh, but we don't touch them. We don't touch them because they, they got diseases. So, yeah, I'm just saying that is so sad. You're trying to impress the security guards. <laughs> That's the it's the fine line in wrestling between who's the mark, you know. It's so true. I remember I remember uh, somebody telling me when I started, we're you know working in the early '80s. You're going to meet a lot of marks in this business, and most of them are actually wrestlers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, somebody. There's a great um, what's his name? Ah, oh, that baseball thing they had on HBO. Oh, with that guy from North Carolina. I can never think of that guy's you name. You spounded down? Yeah. Yay! If there was a wrestling version of that, if there was a wrestling, like, set it in the 80s and make it, like, you know, have these, because all these guys are like Kenny fucking Powers. They're like, like Rusty Brooks would come in, like a, a, a dime store Dusty Rhodes, but he trained everyone. He's a local legend in in more than one way. Like, he trained all these guys, and he has a lot of respect in the area, but... He was never going to be a, ma- a national star. So um, guys like that, and they strut in the dressing room, and there are, you know, classic local guys, Mean Mike and Gil Canatella. These names might mean nothing to you unless my photographer friend Joe McCarthy or somebody from Fort Lauderdale is out there. But, man, these guys look like Sonny Bono on a bad day. And they would post for publicity <laughs> pictures like they were king shit and like, whoa, whoa, like we're the big time, baby. I want to do like an HBO show on that. And the beginning of the show would be like a tracking shot. And the guy's leaving the arena and he looks like the main wrestler. He's big. He's blonde. He has his gear. He's getting into the car and he's like, let's go, buddy, whatever. But when he pulls away, you see that he's the jobber, and then the Ric Flair comes out with the real women in the real car, and he goes to his fancy hotel, and the whole show is about the jobbers who think that they're Kenny fucking Powers, who think that they're the man. Anyway, I'm going to write the dialogue up, and I'll send it out to you guys. Let me ask you guys about another hot issue that... In some ways, I think of you guys when I think of this issue. Uh, not you necessarily, Mike, but I want to hear what you think, but certainly Howard and Vandal. What have you thought about the way CAC handled the postponement and cancellation of this year's convention, where eventually the story became they were waiting for the actual hotel to give them the okay that they can cancel it because of the huge deposit? Meanwhile... Brian Blair was privately telling people that, you know, it's a media hoax. It'll go away. Right. At least that's what I was told yeah. by people who were told it by Brian Blair. Let me clarify that. 
What do you guys think about it? You guys are regulars at CAC. The mission statement of CAC is an honorable one. I don't know why more money isn't given out to wrestlers. They're sitting on a few hundred thousand dollars. Uh, They got everyone trying to be pushed to buy raffle tickets. They got $300,000 in the bank. They have a board of directors that at best seems (laughs) like a bunch of stooges for Brian Blair. What do you think about the way CAC has handled things in 2020? I don't like the way it was handled. I know the explanation that they were giving uh, or that I think Brian Blair was giving and was speaking for Cauliflower Alley Club is, oh, we have this deposit. And if we wait till if we don't wait till June 15th, if we cancel, um, then we don't get our deposit back. Well, in my opinion, he should have said he should have still said something like we're concerned for your safety. If you want refunds, get them. But my assumption is he was thinking, oh, it's a hoax. It's going to go away or whatever, you know? So I I thought it was handled poorly, personally. You know, the the one thing I've looked at is the idea that when they postpone things in, I guess, what did they postpone it? In March for the April convention. Mm -hmm. Why did they go to the nearest available date? Why did they go to September? When things were still up in the air, no one knew what was happening. Nothing was under control. Why wouldn't they say, even if you don't want to go to the next year? We're going to wait. And a lot of these people are older people who are going. So I, I really think they, they should have said something because you know, a lot of these people are in their 60s, 70s, 80s. They should not be in a hotel in Vegas anytime this year, you know, with, with what's going down. Howard, what do you think? <clears throat> um, you know, on, on one hand, I do understand that the main underlying reason was the, uh, the hotel. Um, the money situation and all that, um, and the technicality of having the hotel have to cancel or the city having to cancel. But anybody with an ounce of common sense would say, everything's off for this year. Let's hope for a better 2021, no matter what it is. You know, they're, yeah, they canceled my Reefer Mania. My cult concert is scheduled for December. I don't know if I'm going, but, uh, I ain't going to risk it. I ain't going to risk per, uh, permanent lung damage. So yeah, I, I, I was saying earlier that even, even if they do it next April, I really don't think I'm going to a Vegas hotel next year. I, even if they say, you know what? April is pushing it. I have, I have, I have three big events in April and April's mm-hmm. pushing it mm-hmm. for real. Like if they don't have yeah, a, yeah, uh, we don't know. There's still a lot. We don't know about what's going on. Yeah. And I'm certainly not flying across the country with a mask on. And even, yeah. if there's a, even if there's a vaccine available early next year, it's not like everyone's going to be vaccinated in a week. Right. Absolutely. Yes. And yeah, it really remains going to want seen. that vaccine. <laughs> really remains to be seen. I, I mean, yeah, April of next year is really pushing it. So it's going to. Yeah, I, I think they should have given the message that we we think it's off. But it's, it sounded like they didn't want to do that. I don't know. It just I, I, I don't like the way it was handled. I'll tell you, between everything that went down with Scott Teal and then the way this was handled, and Brian Blair, I don't know, did you, any of you guys see the Brian Blair appearance on John Arezzi's Pro Wrestling Spotlight Live show, which is on Facebook, and then it's on the no, I did not. video channel? Mm-hmm. He went, I'm kind of a recap guy. I, I like to let things happen, and then I just like listen for the sound bites later. So <laughs> the high spot. The fallout that I heard was that he kind of avoided the the meat and potatoes of it, which is what I kind of thought he was going to do, which is why I didn't watch it. 
he went, um, he went full he went full politician on this thing right and yeah i can't imagine anyone watched that and said this is a competent guy i would want leading a not-for-profit charity he <laughs> when discussing the various complaints that have been out there and i'm the one who made the most complaints who isn't a member and won't be a member i refuse to join because <laughs> i don't know what they're doing with money I, yeah I, and I, and by the way yeah. good luck making that call next year for the 605 table jace <laughs> <laughs> i'd well, like to hear that conversation well, that would be so, hi this is chase baccarato from the uh <laughs> well, funny i'm enough, calling from the paz manitoba you know funny enough so brian blair starts saying on there and again knowing what i know all of a sudden he's like you know and greg oliver we're gonna honor him this year and he put out a bunch of stuff about, you know, the problem with this. And I love Greg and I love Scott Teal, you know, which is probably news to Scott Teal. <laughs> and then he says, and Brian last lambasted me. And I love Brian last. I've never spoken a word with Brian fucking Blair. And then later right. on, John Arezzi, who's a... Is he the love guru now? <laughs> John Arezzi, who's a reasonable guy, was trying to, in the nicest way possible... Explain to Brian Boyer that you can't deny science, that this is real, this is happening, and we need to all do the right thing to prevent it from getting out of hand, which is getting out of hand in several places, including Brian Blair's home state. At this point, John Arezzi pulls up a face mask. It's a Mets face mask, because like me and all <laughs> other reasonable people, other than Mike Sempervivi, he's a Mets fan. And... Brian Blair, full politician mode, Brian Blair goes, yeah, you see, I love the Mets. The Mets are doing great. There's been no fucking baseball. There's wow. been no baseball. The Mets are doing great at what? At what? Oh, my God. Okay, so Brian, this is what I want you to do. Since he loves you, since Brian Blair loves you, I want you to get him on the podcast and tell him that uh, – you know, one of the 605 members is a very, very proud fan of the Tuba City Cuttlefish. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 that, that would, oh man, that would, that'd be like the pinnacle of my, uh, 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 are you kidding me? Are you kidding <laughs> me? Pinnacle. I love Tubby the Tuba. I love Tubby the Tuba. <laughs> yeah, it's <I'll> unfortunate. <laughs> I wouldn't get Brian. I mean, on by the, the show. Same I wouldn't let him on the show because you can't get honest answers out of him because he he wants to be a politician. I've dealt with real politicians. I can't look at someone who's trying to be a politician and not just laugh. And I don't take him seriously. And I and uh, no, Brian Blair is not welcome on the Super Podcast. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was some stuff that went down behind the scenes a few months back when that Scott Teal episode was in production. That really, really pissed me off about uh, Brian Blair. And after, as it was actually in the midst of happening, he attempted to declare the 605 Super Podcast like the number one podcast that supports CAC. And I let word get out that he better not fucking do that. Uh, because the, yep. the timing was fucked up and it, and it was completely disingenuous. And it was attempt, an attempt to babyface himself with me and the audience of this show and all the Arcadian Vanguard shows, and I snuffed that down right away. And uh, no, Brian Blair is not welcome on these shows, and I think it's about time that CAC releases a full accounting publicly 
so people see where the money is, where the money's going, and how the money's spent, and how much money's there. And uh, and I think CAC needs a true board of directors, not just a bunch of flunkies for the president. And CEO, the CEO of what? Of what? I, you know, I don't have a dog in that fight. Um, I would say from clarity, for clarity purposes, <clears throat> that it certainly sounds like they need that and have needed that for quite some time. Uh, and it would make sense because then it would alleviate a lot of these questions that people have had for quite some time about where the money is, where does it go, how is it distributed, and all of that sort of stuff. And even forget about anything new that has taken place or how he has handled uh, this whole pandemic and not canceling and all of this other stuff. What has the, the CAC done to ingratiate itself to new prospective members? Because that's been one of their biggest problems for a long, long time, as much like the aging demographic of who watches WWE programming. That's everybody who's not watching Fox News, apparently, is, you know, who's 75 years old, maybe yeah. watching <laughs> NXT. And other than that, you're out of luck. I mean, it's the same sort of thing with the CAC where... You know, I the only reason I have interest in the CAC has been because for years it's been that mythical thing out there that Nick Bockwinkle and they used to honor boxers and this. And then there's a I have this fake sense of what it is, uh, you know, but other than that, it doesn't mean anything. I can I can donate directly to my favorite wrestlers now. I can I can PayPal them money. I can you know, there's a zillion different ways, you know. Me. There's GoFundMe for yes. you know, like our Jerry. How would I believe has like... gotten OnlyFans? I believe he might be doing something with later on. But, ah. <laughs> but like, you know, yeah, what have you done? How are you benefiting the history? I mean, the six oh five, and I'm not just saying that because we're all on here, but one of the reasons that we're all on here and they're the Dan Farrens and the and the Jeff Bowdrins and, and all of these people that have some association with the site, John Arezzi, is because we all love history. We all love wrestling. How how are we getting anybody new who's out there? How can we make them love it? How can we make them honor the past? And they don't seem to be doing a goddamn thing and have never really been able to figure out a way to get anybody new into that clan. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've said this before. The main reason I go to Cauliflower each year is because that's the one time I can see all my wrestling buddies who I normally don't get to see, get to see, you know, get to see Howard, get to see Tom Burke, get to see all the people that I've known for years. And that's kind of the hub, you know, I suppose. Yeah. Like other, I mean, other places, you know, now it's totally about that for me, because it used to be what Mike just said. You go out there and you see the living legends, the actual dinosaurs rub elbows with Luthez, Nick Bockwinkle, for God's sakes. I met Ox Baker out there, like everybody get hang out with Terry Funk. Now, nobody really good is left. And it's yeah. all these people as, as a esteemed broadcaster friend of mine, who I don't know if he wants this quote attributed to him or not. <laughs> if he does, I'll tell it on a later episode. But he said, CAC is where people to go to convince themselves that they're in the wrestling business. <laughs> and I said, that is so accurate. I wish I would have said that. Nailed it. <laughs> now, here's the thing. Now, I still urge everyone to come out there in 2022. Yes, because I don't know about 2021, but definitely by 2022, yep. when there's going to be really nobody left. And, but the thing of it is we do have a good time 
And um, it's all about the camaraderie now because yeah. the thing that it originally was is gone. There's none of the classic names anymore. And it's just like, you know. And, you know, also, just to go back for one second, I don't know. I'm no expert. But um, when it comes to matters involving my health, whatever the Cuban assassin says, I tend to follow his advice. <laughs> what did the Cuban <laughs> What did the Cuban assassin say? He said Tap is gonna be. Fi- he said uh, it's all gonna be fine, and if they're having it, he's getting. <laughs> he's gonna get on a plane, and they're gonna have to pry the ticket out of his cold, dead hands, or words to that effect. <laughs> and Brian oh, Blair Lord. is a great president, and blah blah blah. <laughs> what is the urge? Is, is he getting paid for uh, the guy honoring every? You know, they're gonna honor David Peterson. They're gonna honor uh, Fidel Sierra. They're gonna honor the Cuban. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. I'm burying myself here, but I I have a feeling that the 605 Brian Blair Alliance has come to an end anyway. But no, don't worry. He'll tell you he loves um, you. He'll tell you really, he loves you. I mean, it's like, for better or worse, it's like Trump's cabinet. Just uh, just have your buddies do whatever and and call it a day. And it's just the Tampa clan. I mean, I think next year Bugsy McGraw is getting the uh, Luthez Award. <laughs> Can you imagine at some point in his life, Brian Blair saw a picture of Whipper Billy Watson and said, I need that mustache. <laughs> right. <laughs> It'll never go out of style. I hate to bail here, but uh, got some stuff I got to take care of. But uh, uh, Mike is so great to talk to you and Howard. Great to reconnect with you. And, uh, Brian, thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for being here, Kurt. I always love to have you on. You add so much, so much energy. But before you go, who's going to win the World Series? Like I said, the Tuba City Cuttlefish. <laughs> Last right. year, it was the Buffalo Broncos. This year, it's the Tuba City Cuttlefish. I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm sticking with that answer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Kurt- hey, if, hey, hey, if, if, if there's, if there's uh, coronavirus deniers... I can uh, be a World Series denier and say, no, no, it was the cuttlefish that one, damn it. <laughs> well, we'll see how that works, Kurt. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are the greatest, seriously. Uh, stay safe, I'll my friend. I'll talk to you soon, man. All right, Kurt. <laughs> Take care, guys. All right. Well, there he is. Vandal Drummond, another memorable appearance by our good friend. I'm going to add someone in a moment. Howard, have you kept up at all with modern wrestling? Have you been watching any of it? Funny you should ask. Funny you should ask. You know, one thing I hate about modern wrestling is all these finishing holds that they give. Like, I understand, like, in the 60s, the atomic drop, that was a pretty hot thing at the time, reflected the time they were living in. Uh, But now it's like... Oh, watch out. Tommy Dreamer's going to hit Raven with the midlife crisis. Greenbaum has him up. It's the minimum wage. Oh, my God. Greenbaum. <laughs> so like you were saying the other night with um, Cornette, wrestling is silly and fun. I hate when people describe wrestling as fun. Oh, Bobby Duncan came out and had a fun match with um, Pete Sanchez. It was a fun match. You sat there and giggled. Well, <laughs> you see that a lot. That was a fun match. The, the oh, Brad Armstrong came out and worked Kevin Sullivan in a fun match. 
that term has been used more lately than ever before. I hate that. Wrestling's supposed to be there's fun. No fun. You're supposed to just enjoy there, there it. There was no fun match when I was shooting the 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 fabulous ones against the sheep herders of the Mid South Coliseum. That wasn't a fun match. How many well, fun King it, Curtis you know? matches were there? How many fun King Curtis matches? Exactly. You call that fun? Crowds ready to riot. You know. Well, even fun. if that look, let me determine if it's fun or not. Stop winking <laughs> at me every fucking second right, and turning right. around and reminding me that this, you know, much of it is horseshit because there's still right. that little part of and I can accept a lot of horseshit at this point. I've got to watch it every day. And there's some stuff that I actually <laughs> really like that I know Brian would kill me for. With that said, for God's sakes, it's still supposed to be something that was rooted in sport, and there's still great stories that you could tell from sport that would make some sense that you could tie in and that, you know, I I understand that we're going to have to have the cinematic presentation of the Bray Wyatt match, but Cesaro and, you know, and whoever that doesn't have to be a tables match, you know, with all these goofy rules and everything and the constant winks and this and that, just give me the damn match. Is that okay? You know, it's that 31 flavors thing. It's like, just give me, give me the three or four flavors I'm looking for in my banana split. And then you can have your, you know, triple Sunday, whatever it is, 75 super kick, you know, Canadian destroyer finale Sunday, whatever the hell you want to have. Yeah. Wrestling has devoured itself. Well, you know, one of the things we talked about, I think it was right before you got on the line, Howard, is is the fans. And when, were you already on the line when we were talking about the fact that those female fans aren't there anymore? No. Just look at the fans in the crowd. I mean, we could talk about the fact there are no old people, or at least if there are old people, they aren't dressed like old people anymore. And you don't even see as many small kids, and you don't see as many women. There's one type of fan that predominantly goes to these shows now. They've chased mm-hmm. off every other fan base. There's no name. Yeah. One other, name one, one other entity in sports or entertainment that cannibalizes itself like professional wrestling. And you know, what's weird is that, um, trends go from one company to another, like the Rona. It just spreads. It's like the outfits and the presentation and the, um, interview style and the, production just it's like whatever wwe starts doing everyone starts doing and then it becomes this 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 swirling circle of just bullshit everyone declares that they hate wwe and then they go and copy wwe always always ever since the 80s every independent group does like whatever wwe starts the ramp every little indie group has to have a a the four foot long ramp just to say they had a ramp with some little party DJ uh, lights above it to say they had a ramp. You know, I mean, if any group had a brain in their head, they'd come out, they'd work UWFI style matches. They would have no entrance music. They would have guys that you don't know about except to say that he's a badass walking down the aisle. Oki Shakina scared the crap out of me. No entrance music, just a weird mean looking guy coming down the aisle. That's all it takes. What the hell? Like Cornette always says, it's not rocket science. Tell you what, guys, I'm going to add someone to this call. I believe he is now available. He'll join us for a few minutes. I do have to, at some point, watch wrestling tonight because I have to review it for the Internet <laughs> show, which is unfortunate. But uh, let me I add this person. You. I think they're there. We will find out shortly. We are adding this person right now. Let's see how this works out. We are calling him. 
Hello? There he is, Mr. Wrestling, John Arezzi. Welcome to Opening Day Star Wars Extra Innings. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. On the line with us right now, we have Mike Sempervivi and Howard Baum. I, I believe you met Howard. You met him at California Alley, right? No, never. Oh, really? Never. Not? What an honor, John. Good to meet oh. you. It's an honor to talk to you, my friend. <laughs> well, How are you? you and just- Mr. Sempervivi, it's been a while. It has. I hope everything is going well for you, sir. It seems like it is with the, the new Facebook show and everything. Congrats. Things are uh, picking up steam, as they say. Can you rig a couple auctions for me? Would you mind doing that a little bit? <laughs> uh, sure. What do you need? <laughs> so I need it all. <laughs> I just made a private deal with uh, someone from Slam Wrestling who wanted some Randy Savage stuff and uh, put together a nice package for her. For her, ah, so you've narrowed mm. the list of people it could be down to a uh, few, a select few. Select few, yes. Well, we'll see uh, when they appear next on Pro Wrestling Spotlight Live, if we see any Randy Savage stuff in the mm-hmm. background. Uh, before we talk any wrestling, John, did you see the Mets news that just came out? Uh, Strowman. Marcus Strowman, yeah. Yeah, that's not good. That's, uh, that's very bad, actually. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's devastating. Yep. Mike, did you hear? No. Marcus Stroman, a tear in his calf muscle. So he was predicting a dominant season. It may not be happening. Ooh. Now, is there any indication how long he's going to be out for? I have not seen that yet. I've been recording, and I just saw it flash by me on uh, on social media. And I said, oh, no. I'm not going to stop and read that article now because it'll piss me off for the rest of the night. <laughs> so I'm going to wait until we're done recording, and I'm going to take a look. But uh Get Juan Lagares back today, so that is joy, 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 happy, happy. I didn't see that. We got Juan Lagares back, and uh, another fairly big name, a second baseman, power hitter, Carlos Baerga. No, 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 no. Actually, a, a fairly big uh, name. My nephew told me earlier, and I simply have forgot. That's what old age does to you. <laughs> Wait a minute. So you weren't building like I thought you were building up like you were gonna reveal the name. You you forgot the name? Brian uh, Dozier, the uh That's the guy. Oh former Minnesota, yeah. It's second baseman, I guess utility infielder now too, picked him up as well. Yes, Brian Dozier, that's the guy. Yep. That's what we needed. More second baseman. Yeah. <laughs> and no pitching. You and don't have no any pitching. pitching. I was going to say, I mean, really, regardless of, of who gets hurt, I mean, do you really think, and I obviously I'm a little biased here, but did you really think you were built for the sprint? Yes. Yeah. Even to get past Atlanta and Washington, forget about Philadelphia, but just those two. Yeah. I always have a great feeling in the beginning of the season, no matter how the team looks, it's always, yes, they're going to do it. <laughs> Hope springs eternal or, or exactly. summer springs going, eternal. I've been going through this since 1966. So I'm in it for the long haul, in it forever. And uh, my heart gets stomped on and crushed every year. Hey, John, let me ask you, you know, Howard's in South Florida. Yeah. When did you first start seeing Florida wrestling on TV in New York? And did you ever actually attend any shows in Florida? I have never. Uh, attended a wrestling show in Florida. No. And Florida wrestling in the New York market is actually one of the shows I never even watched. Hmm. Now you had access to it on Long Island or you didn't? I don't even remember it being on. Wow. Years with that. That's interesting. Cause you know, you hear from so many people that they got to see it on Spanish international television. 
mm-hmm. out of New Jersey. And that's why Florida guys would appear at the garden because the fans in New York would see them and know who they were. And so this is the seventies or eighties, the seventies into the early eighties. Okay. Because I was out really after 78 and I really didn't come back until the late eighties. If you really look at it. I mean, so I, there was a, there was a, there was a a lapse time for me of uh, almost 10 years. Well, you and Howard have something in common. As youngsters, as teenagers, you both started shooting ringside. Howard in Florida, you up here at Madison Square Garden and throughout the Northeast. Let me ask you each. Howard, let me start with you. Who was the scariest guy to shoot during a match? Like you were afraid they would come after you or you just never knew what was going to happen. Was there one guy that you were always worried about? Definitely Abdullah because I was half a mark at the time I was doing it. And, um, and then, I mean, Abdullah and Terry Funk, because Terry Funk was completely unpredictable. But then, as I got to realize that he's a nice guy, and in 1989, uh, I was shooting in, shooting an NWA show at the Knight Center in Miami, and uh, Funk was working Sting. And Funk was, like, chasing a few photographers, and they teach us photographers, like, when the action's outside the ring, just lean up against the apron, and they're going to go around you. Except in the case of Abdullah or Terry Funk, because they will attack you. And I knew this, but I let it happen because I wanted the story. And he did. And he choked me and he throttled me and he threw me down at ringside. <laughs> and I loved it. And I didn't feel a thing. Light as a feather, as they say. And it was tremendous. I sold for him at the night center. It was great. So... After I learned not to be afraid of him, because I just met him a few times and I realized he was a nice guy, I let him catch me. I still didn't think he was going to do anything. It was quite a shock, but he totally, you know, attacked me in working style. John, what about you? Georgiano Steele. Huh? And, and Bugsy McGraw. Really? Bugsy? <clears throat> yeah. Well, he was a heel in New York. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, he was a heel in New York, and uh, uh, he chased he was, teddy, he, he was a teddy bear down here. Well, he chased me around the ring um, in a spot show in Massachusetts at one time. And <laughs> that was right after I did an interview with him in the locker room, and uh, he was acting a little strange. Uh, and, and so that was that. But George was always like, would jump out of the ring. And I mean, he would, he would scare. He would scare you. Did anyone give I could you, see where he would be scary. Did anyone give you a warning ever? When you were when you started shooting, like you know, there are certain guys to watch out for, or if they come out of the ring, they didn't come out of the ring as much in the mid seventies as they would years later. But did anyone right. tell you, like, hey, heads up, you know, get out of this guy's way, or you know, don't do this, do this? No, not really. I mean, but later on, you know, during the uh, late eighties, early nineties, uh, Mick Foley uh, would uh, make it a point uh, to involve me if I was at ringside uh, doing like a play by play for. Uh, indie show and uh, there was even one time we worked an angle out where he dropped the big elbow on me hmm. Howard what but, about you did anyone give you a heads up or you just figured things out for yourself well I actually helped Mick Foley in his match against the Sandman in Fort Lauderdale <laughs> I was shooting ringside and just a little sidebar to the story I uh, I put my favorite group the cult over because Mick Foley sent me and my buddy out to get uh, his entrance music. He came into Born to be Wild. And I mean, the original was so played out. This was like 1995. And I'm like, 
jokingly, I'm like, which version do you want me to get? Because I knew which version I was going to get. I was going to get the cult, no matter what he said. So, And I don't even like the cult's version, but it's the cult. And sure enough, it's on the commercial video and all that. So during the match, Foley is motioning to me. It's a barbed wire match against the Sandman. Nice, bloody match. Got great photos. And he motions to me. So I'm on the video, Extreme Warfare 1, I believe it is. And I throw this big garbage can into the ring for Mick. But as far as being warned, they didn't just warn me. I was not allowed ringside during Abdul the Butcher versus Blackjack Mulligan for some reason. And wouldn't you know it, I happened to be shooting for Weekly Fight that week for the Japanese magazine, which I didn't always do. So one of the few times that I'm shooting for them, I had to go on the other side of the guardrail. Uh, like a commenter, you know, because Abdullah was apparently going to do something wild. How much did they pay? Weekly fight. Oh man! In this is 1982 money. They paid 350 per roll. How do you like that? So all those guys, uh, <laughs> guys were. I mean, Japanese was a uh, Japanese was the the thing to do back then. That was where the real money was. After it didn't pay. John, what do you think when you hear three fifty a roll? That's uh, that was a lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, my stories uh, with photos, uh, I'd sell for twenty five to fifty dollars, and later on, I used to get seventy five bucks a story with um, photos from Ring Magazine. And after uh, treated me fairly well, I forgot the I, I sold a bunch of pictures to Bill, but you know, maybe there were ten, fifteen bucks a picture, twenty bucks a picture. Right. Next. That was, that, that was not enough money to uh, retire on, for sure. Yeah, I, th- I think he paid like seven of it. Well, the few times that after he used me, he paid me like $7 per photo or something. But it was the prestige. I wanted to see my name in there yeah. uh, among the legendary photographers, which I never got. I never got my byline in the after magazines. No kidding. You never got photo credit? Well, here's the thing. After Florida had like 25 top-notch wrestling photographers, and after knew me, and I was just waiting out Paul Bauman. He was an old man, and I was like, "Well, when he goes, I'm the guy." After already knows me, <laughs> um, but the thing is, I left for college in '84, and Paul Bauman was still going strong. So, you had Paul Bauman in Miami, you had Raúl shooting for Japan two or three different magazines at a time. You had Dwayne Long shooting in West Palm Beach. You had Bill Otten shooting in Orlando. And all those guys were top-notch photographers. So I was waiting in the wings, but it never happened. But um, I was more your BC uh, paper magazines, your um, Mike O'Hara magazines and stuff like that. I was kind of lucky because I I kind of worked for all of them and some were better payers than others, and uh, I just looked through a bunch of old magazines from the 70s uh, with my photos on it, some cover stories uh, with Neil Moskris. And so it's really cool to look back at this stuff now and see your see your photos. Yeah, and- like you're definitely one of the names of my childhood. You know, it's amazing how we all um, – we were all there, and now we're all here like old sages. Yes, and Brian is the ringleader for all of us. Right. He's doing God's work. Well, yes, speaking, of, speaking of ringleaders, what can you two gentlemen tell me about Don Wilson? Because you both met him at different points. Oh, man. Let me start with you, John, because you would have met Don Wilson first. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, not a lot of interaction with him, but it was with the WFIA back in the 
early days, uh, but not too much correspondence. Yes. Uh, but I uh, wasn't as close with Don as I was with so many of the others that were prominent back then. So I really can't give you, you know, some good uh, memories of Don Wilson other than met him a few times and corresponded with him uh, way back, way back in the day. Now, Howard, you would have met him, but also you have the unique story of you and Pete Letterberg. <laughs> it, I mean, you called yourself at first the WFIA, but this is when Don Wilson retired, left, resigned. I don't remember what it was, but that Jim Ross guy in Illinois declared that he yeah. was in charge of the WFIA and you guys had a little bit of a feud with him, correct? Am I saying everything? Right. Well, well, here's the deal. I was just a little kid at that time and Pete Letterberg was handling most of the business. I was like 17 going on 18. Pete was like 22 going on 23. And we had attended the uh, convention a year before and I was 16 years old at the Ramada Inn in Mount Moriah. Told the story before, but you know, it's eons ago. It bears repeating and I had been out drinking a few times with my underage Roddy Piper ID. I was 16 years old. It wasn't the first drink I ever had, but I was definitely new to the game. And Pete introduces me to Don Wilson at the time, the head of the WFIA, along with uh, Dave Brzezinski. And we're in the bar, and it's like one of the first five times I ever drank in my entire life. It was so exotic. And we're in the dark bar. Don Wilson couldn't have been cooler. I refer to him as the as the Robert Mitchum of professional wrestling. So he got <laughs> us uh, some some wild turkey and cokes. And uh, in my brief career, I was only a jackman. Um, but he turned me on to wild turkey. And by the second drink, I was every drink I put down, I would break the stem of the glass and throw it in the drink, in, throw it in the shrubbery, and everyone was laughing. Don Wilson was a great guy. I think. There is some kind of residual heat somewhere between Don Wilson and Dave uh, Brzezinski toward myself and or Pete, because just the vibe that I got, I ran into Don Wilson years after that, after we took over our version of the WFIA, and uh, Dave Brzezinski just like unfriended me out of the blue after giving me a couple terse answers to some things I asked him about. And I'm like, all right, not a fan. And then Wilson blew me off when I saw him at the CAC a couple times. So I think somehow in the way that was handled, uh, there was some kind of heat somehow. I don't know one thing about it. And that guy, Jim Ross, that took over. What can you tell me about him? Because he's a, it's not the Jim Ross who's the commentator. Right. It was a different Jim Ross who yeah. took, took over the WR. He's the guy who eventually ousted Tom Burke from the WFIA. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I have literally no idea who that is. I mean, I know the name, but I do not know the person. Wow. Wow. So, yeah, we kind of like took over a bastardized version of it. And I don't know how Pete wrangled that away. I believe there was a piece of paper signed or something. We had to call ourselves Wrestling Fans International for some reason. I really didn't know. I really didn't care. I was 17. I was going to hang out with Jerry Lawler. That's it. Who owns the you rights know. to it today? I wonder who owns the rights to the WFIA today. Hmm. What would it be worth? I don't know. But I mean, there was a logo and obviously there was the actual name. I believe they were both trademarked. I wonder, yeah. I wonder who owns that. I think Burke would yeah. probably. Yeah, Tom Burke will probably know. 
Yeah, he probably has it in his collection right now. <laughs> right. His Milo of Croton's G-string. <laughs> uh, well, my... What was the biggest competition to the WFIA that was out there? Because like you go back to me for the older magazines and you go through and you see, you know, the things, the less stature, things like that, where it's, it's in some of these old magazines. What was, was there another rival group or was there just a, a secondary fans club that, that even came close to approaching that level? I don't think so. I think uh, when I was uh, on the board of directors and when I first attended, it was just WFIA and that was the big, yeah. An organization. That was it. Yeah. And it was amazing the access that they got to the different promotions, too. Uh, I mean, because they worked with uh, UWF Mid-South and Watts gave them access and stuff. They, It wasn't just always Memphis. But when Pete and I went to Memphis, where Don Wilson and Dave Brzezinski were doing it for the previous couple of years, um we're like, what could be better than Memphis? They're, they're treating us better than Florida would. Well, the so w- much fun. Yeah, the WWWF didn't cooperate. I mean, I remember the convention in Boston in 75, and Ernie Roth was there, and he was the promoter there at the time. Uh, and uh, he convinced uh, Paul Bashan to show up for a little bit, and Paul was a little uncomfortable, but the office uh, didn't cooperate at all, at all. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to add another person uh, soon. I'm waiting for him to write back to me, who I believe wants to talk a little bit of baseball. So, Howard, any wrestling topics Ooh. before we go back? Because I know I know, <laughs> we must be killing you when we talk baseball. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, you may as well be speaking Mandarin. Let me see if I have anything that needs to be said here. <clears throat> okay, I was just listening to your Jim Cornette, and then I have a small confession to make. In the beginning... Before I became a household name, I would refrain from listening to a lot. Of, I'll make it brief. I was re, I would refrain from listening to a lot of cornet because I have this synchronicity thing going on with the cornet show, and it's like he just says everything I would say, but better and funnier, infused with more history. And I'm like, if I was going to be a comedian, I'm not going to listen to George Carlin because he's better than me in every way, shape, and form. So I'm not going to do it. But I just want to say that I back you up. I am a Superman, George Reeves man. I don't care if there were no great <laughs> villains on there. That, sh- that show is predictable. Usually I don't like when the same thing happens over and over, but the sound effects and the shh, and we burst in through the wall. The victims, the um, the bad guys were hapless, but so what? I pop for it every time when he bent the gun and they had the Three Stooges sound effects and he would throw them against the wall or he would rescue Jimmy Olsen at the last minute. I thought they did the show tongue-in-cheek. I thought it lost a little something where it went to black and white, though, don't you? Well, it started black and white. I mean, when it went to color. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was a little different. I mean, I like that version of Clark Kent more than... I, I yeah. mean, it's silly. I mean, I respect the bumbling Clark Kent, and I know it's more true to the comic. But the kind of just, you know... I don't even know how to say it. Just aloof Clark Kent. Yeah. And then he just, yeah, yeah. he's Superman all of a sudden. I, I, I dig George Reeves. I do. John, what do you think? You must have watched I, I'm right there with you, man. George Reeves, <laughs> Superman. It was the very first show I ever saw on color, on color TV set. Wow. Yeah. Huh. And by then he was, and by then he was wearing padding and stuff, right? He was starting to look old. <laughs> I, I was like every episode, I have the DVDs of all the whole series. And I just, 
I just love it. I mean, it just brings back my childhood, and uh, I loved Superman from way back then. No comment till the time limit is up. Oh, my God. <laughs> Marty Gorman used to say that all the time. I don't know if anyone <laughs> remembers Marty Gorman. Uh, yeah. But Marty, <laughs> famously lit on fire by Jimmy Del Rey. Jimmy Backlund, uh, you may know him as uh, Howard. Uh, but Marty would always quote that line from Superman. No comment till the time limit is up. Uh, that was a great i think it really i i think they did it really tongue-in-cheek i enjoyed that and and uh i guess that's it for and you guys were also talking about refs so i want to say that one of the unsung refs from florida was frenchy bernard he was like a predecessor to bill alfonso small wiry guy and um and he took great bumps and um the ref bump is a good lost art like fonzie and and Frenchie, I would have to say, are the two best ref bumps I've seen because they would bump into those guys and they would go flying. And a lot of the guys, you know, they do that stumbling ref bump, especially a lot of the modern people. They like do that thing and then they take the little bump out of the ropes. But these guys went flying. The best ref bump and I ever know, saw that I haven't seen anyone copy, and I don't know why, because to me it it was amazing. It was on a Dennis Caraluzzo show once. It was that spot where, like, the referee gets knocked into the corner behind the wrestlers, and the wrestlers go down. The referee wasn't knocked out, but what happened was he started patting on the mat like he lost his contact lenses. So all the action is still <laughs> happening, and the cheating is happening, but the referee's blind. He can't see. So he's just frantically patting around trying to find his contact lenses, and it was perfect. Oh, my God. And I've never seen anyone else do that ever again. Classic. Hmm. So. That's some psychology. And, you know, I always thought that Tommy Young insisted upon himself. What do you mean? I think he insists upon himself. He has to do that flying aerial maneuver when he's going to make a three count. I'll tell you the story that really turned me off on Tommy Young. Or First of all, I defy you to watch a Tommy Young match, no matter who's in the ring, and not draw your attention to Tommy Young. First of all. Second of all, I was ringside shooting around 89 NWA, and I'm like... um resting my elbow on the mat in between matches and um, somebody throws a, yeah, he's just super vigilant. He's like a, he's like a OCD craft store owner or something. He's like, he's like passive aggressive in the ring. Like everything's his business. So I'm leaning on the ring and somebody, there was like somebody threw a Coke uh, cup in the ring and he kicks it out of the way with great efficiency. Like nothing's going on. The match isn't, isn't coming out or anything. And, um, he's like, and he looks at me and this other photographer and he goes, I can't do everything guys. And we look at each other like, who the fuck is asking you to do anything? <laughs> you know, like, what the fuck? I can't do everything guys. Like back up a little. And he kicks the thing out of the ring. I'm like, what the fuck is this guy's deal? You know, who's so cool. Earl Hebner, um, or whatever, whichever Hebner worked the 605 pay-per-view, uh, in Orlando in 05, uh, I was ringside and I was kind of facilitating, you know, the costumes and everything because the guy taking the jackets wasn't on point or anything. So I rescued Scott Steiner's little piecemeal chainmail headdress and stuff like that. And at the end of the night, whichever Hebner was, said, thank you. I appreciate that. I was watching you tonight. I'm like, of course. So that's it. I just felt like I needed to interject on my history with referees. I like Tommy Young, for the record. I think Tommy Young's a good referee. 
Yeah, I heard just... you guys putting him. I heard you guys putting him over, but uh, he was never my cup of tea. He insists upon himself. Slanderous to somebody like me who grew up with Tommy Young. How dare you? <laughs> but uh, actually, well, my question everybody is... grew up with Tommy Young. Well, so my question is actually just because right now we're going through 82 and Dory Funk is there, you know, booking Mid-Atlantic right now. And we, you know, see the trade off. We see Tommy Young sometimes down working in Florida. We get Stu Schwartz kind of going back and forth. I'm assuming Stu Schwartz left Mid-Atlantic whenever it was, I guess, for good in 83. Did he just go to Florida and retire or did he bounce around? Because I always associated him with Florida and to see him so much in Mid-Atlantic, it's just I kind of forgot about he was even there and such a presence there. You know what's odd? I used to see photos of Stu Schwartz refereeing matches, and I think he only worked the northern towns because he didn't come to Florida during my era. I mean, he didn't come to Miami during my era. I think I'm having a stroke during this episode. What's wrong with me? I but I always saw photos of him during the time when I was around, and I think he only worked the big shows, maybe the Bayfront, Tampa. Maybe he was in a particular town like Jacksonville. Never came down south. Um, there were a couple of guys like that, the Wolfman. You know, that you you only saw them on the circuit like in Tampa. Um, but you know, I know, I know, if you wanna. Compare and contrast 1982, Mid-Atlantic, and Florida. I think one conclusion can be reached because they had pretty much the same talent pool. You had Rotundo, Funk, Briscoe. Basically, Florida, Mid-Atlantic were the, pretty much the same for all intents and purposes. But we had Dusty Rhodes, and I think that just points to the drawing power and excitement of Dusty Rhodes. Because other, if you take Dusty Rhodes out of Florida it's and Gordon Soley, it's kind of like Mid-Atlantic, right? Basically, yeah. I mean, we have, I guess, more, at that time, more Georgia influence because of, you know, the Savannah and things like that, Roddy Piper, and for a time, only Anderson and Stan Hansen before they left. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, I guess... I guess the one capper would be we had Ric Flair. So, like, for everything that was the same, whether it be a Briscoe or something like that, I mean, yeah, you had Dusty, and we're about to get Kevin Sullivan and Jake Roberts then going back, you know, going down there, and Barry Windham yeah. had gone back down there, and they, you know, they they all evolved and exploded, I guess, really around that time, and they kind of all came into their own with their, you know, their personalities and that that's the only defense that I, I guess I would have to Dusty because you see how Dusty rocked Georgia and what he did with Piper and, and everything he was doing in Florida. And the only thing we have is Flair and Valentine and then Piper's turn after he got stabbed. I mean, right. that's about the only right. thing that we can go, hey, we can try to top you with this. And then the thing is, that's when Flair won the belt for the second time and he was gone a lot. Gone, so yeah. When he came back, he was a baby face, but it was you know, not as constant as Dusty in 82, which is every week. But I mean, if you take the top guys out of it, the top blonde haired box office draws, um, I guess the point I'm trying to make, I don't know if it's Gordon Soley versus Bob Caudle, and I don't mean to start a Southeastern feud, but I think there is something, what is the word I'm looking for? Even though it's the same bunch of guys, it just didn't seem as exciting as Florida. 
I think it's the preponderance of guys like um, Carnoodle. Like, you never saw guys like that get a push. Like these vaguely Southern guys. Hmm. Jim Nelson, Carnoodle. The only I the only way I would argue that is Cronudo at least was able to come out at that time, and you could be granted, you know, he had seven years under his belt by the time he got his break. So when he got it, you know, he latched onto it, and he was always a somewhat of a rambling promo. But I think, you know, teamed up with Nelson and at Slaughter's side, I thought he pulled off that lackey role well. Now as time went on, as him kind of always being there you either were a Cronoodle fan and a, you know, somebody who's, or you weren't. And I think anybody that saw him in the WWF, or if you saw him from a different territory, I mean, he looked like a guy, I think that would be a stereotype of a, a guy coming out of the, the, the hills of Western North Carolina. And, yeah. you know, it was just that guy. And Johnny Weaver was like, I mean, Johnny Weaver was such an yeah. overwhelming presence that absolutely now, cause I would love to argue that, well, with Wahoo and Briscoe and this person that we were deeper, but that's really up for debate. And honestly, you know, you look at the undercard and for all the talent that started in mid Atlantic at that time, and they had Landell and Tony Anthony, and there was, you know, this person and that person, were they utilized better on Florida TV or were those matches more exciting? Yeah, probably they were, you know, and that's, you know, again, it's, it's hard for me to argue because I'm so you know biased about it, but yeah, I mean, (laughs) when it gets to be the bottom line of having dusty at that time too, it's, it's very, very tough, especially without flair. Well, you know, something else occurred to me that I didn't think any of this out in advance, but it just occurred to me. All the Florida guys were like really in shape, tan, and could work. All the mid-Atlantic guys could work, but they looked like they were truck drivers. It's Bill White, yeah. <laughs> and I, I think this is, I mean, like you had cool looking guys um, in a completely platonic way. I thought Bob Roop, Steve Kern, Don Morocco were just cool looking guys, you know, they were in shape and tan and, you know, they were having a great life. Like I couldn't even conceptualize sex or the things they were really doing, but you knew they were having a good time. And mid Atlantic is like everyone. uh, And by the way, were there any worse promos than when they let Mike Rotundo and um, Kelly Kaniski talk? Oh my God. Mike Rotundo is somebody who is doing a, like one of those eighties hijacking videos, like on summer. <laughs> it's like, it's the, the most amazing combination. And it's like, and it, it, it talk about Florida. Like they would have Kaniski Rotundo team with Mike Davis. Mike Davis would of course be the one who takes the loss. Mike Davis was the only one of the three who could do an interview. Like Rotundo yeah, never yeah. really got it until the varsity club. And he was phenomenal there. But like, you know, yeah. other than that, he's always, there's always been a thing with him. Oh, the most painful interviews in that, in that territory. And try, like Angelo Mosca Jr. Of course. But, you know, here's another big difference, I think. In Memphis, you have Lance. In Florida, you have Gordon Soley. And they can save any any interview with anybody. And Gordon Soley interviewed Mike Rotundo, of course, and Barry Windham. Barry Windham was not a great talker at all points of his career, but he got way better. And um, But Soley would ask him a to-the-point question, and the guy would go, well, you know, I'm all-American, I'm out there to... You know, I'm really going to bust my fanny and uh, we'll see you out there and, and uh, whatever. And Gordon would be, he would put a button on it. He'd be like, all right, then, well, you've heard it. And uh, if you've looked in his eyes, I certainly will see you in Wellington. But 
up there in mid-Atlantic, you had the lame promo, but then you go back to Bob Cottle, who looks like his microphone is filled with helium, and he's just having a time just trying to hold it down by his face. And he's like, well, that's exactly <laughs> right, Mike Davis. Uh, uh, let's go to the rig. Then they do that Chiron thing, like just to show that they can do it for no reason. And I, I would always Jeff love this... Jeff Sword in the ring awaiting Sergeant Slaughter. All right. Slaughter well, was a monster in those more than Slaughter was impressive back then. He's looking at the green screen. He doesn't know who's in the ring. He's got whoever it is, or a Ali Bay the Turk. And well, here's David Patterson. Like, <laughs> <laughs> All right. And, and like, what people oh, don't what? see is because it's, you know, for the most part, it's it's Bob. And I love Bob Cottle because I grew up right. with Bob Cottle. But like right. David Crockett and I, I, I liked, you know, and he was very I, I caught him at the end initially, Rich Landrum. But like you go back and watch and it's like. These guys were not microphone ringleaders. You know, Bob. Oh, my God. As as hilariously as unflappable as he could be. He was a weather caster. (laughs) Like, you know, Lance was a, a general. Gordon was a general. Now, I'll say this. Roddy Piper is far more impressive working to me with Bob Cottle in some ways yeah. than he is with Gordon Soley because yeah. Gordon's such a great presence and there's so much great going on that watching Piper work with Cottle and actually get things out of Cottle and having them go back and forth, I think it's actually in some ways a little bit of a more masterful performance what he's pulling off there. Yeah, because Piper has to be his own straight man with Cottle. He's like, oh, I come out here, you tell me. Like, he, he goes into business for himself. But with Soli, I saw them as like a more fatherly son thing, even when Piper was a, a heel down there. And Soli would always call him an island unto himself. And he wouldn't treat him like the other heels. It's like they were setting up the save that Piper did to save Soli from Morocco. It looks like they were setting that up from a year ago. Because if you look at any of the commentary, Soli never shits on Piper. And Piper never shows anything but respect for Soli. And Piper doesn't shit on Cottle. What I've noticed watching Cottle, Shivani, and David Crockett is like what they teach you in improv school, which is like, yes, and. Because any three of those guys, David Crockett will go, Oh, Jeff Sword just uh, bit Greg Valentine on the ankle. And then you can be sure as Shinola, the next thing Bob Cottle says is, well, yeah, he sure did, David. He bit him right on the ankle. And you listen to 90% of Mid-Atlantic commentary. It's whoever it is repeating what the other guy just said. You look at Starcade, uh, Gordon and uh, Cottle. Everything Gordon says, Cottle says, that's right, Gordon. And then he repeats exactly what he says. And, and you know, that's this is a problem to me I have with it's it stands out the most to me on NXT because I've I've heard Beth Phoenix talk before and I've heard Mauro Ranello do a zillion things over a long period of time. So to me, it just sticks out there more. But it is a problem across WWE and always has been where. Morrow says something, Beth is going to say something, and then whoever the third, you know, person is, Tom Phillips or whoever it is, they're going to get theirs in. And it's boom, boom, boom. And it's it just is a part of that really antiseptic way that NXT is presented anyway and how WWE presents their product where in some ways aesthetically it's amazing because they have the ability to make it look amazing, but it's all very – 
it's just very fake and plastic and yeah. very just again just very antiseptic and very clean where you get that boom 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 from the announcers and it just sucks because you know it's coming and even if you don't know what they're going to say you just know that the cadence is right. coming and it's just part of the whole fake thing yeah, well, the verbiage, the cadence. If I could jump in, guys, because I'm somewhat on standby <laughs> for the last 10 minutes. Hey, when do we get our own show, Brian? I think we made a love connection. I think we may have to have you guys back on again just uh, so you can talk about <laughs> Bob Cottle's microphone being filled with helium, uh, which was one of the first yeah, visuals. I was going to say, let me leave on a high note. I'll let you boys discuss your uh, your baseball. And it's an honor, John, being on the air with you. It's an honor, Mike. Uh, that we got to have a little thing, and I uh, hope to. And Brian, of course, thank you for everything. Howard, who's going to win the World Series? Ah, uh, you know, you know, Mister Last. I'm sorry, Brian. I'm I'm going to let my friend on here to answer me because I don't know. So I'm going to let my friend. Um, he's soft spoken. He's uh, pensive. He is ruminating. Roddy Piper. <laughs> you, you know, Mister Last. Um, you know, we didn't have uh, no fancy podcasts or nothing like that growing up. Uh, you know, we didn't have time for no games. Uh, wasn't easy up there on the pause. Um, you sound a lot. You sound a lot like Don Morocco, uh, <laughs> <laughs> They hung out. You see, uh, um, you know, it was no game. My mother used to shake me to sleep at night. And if that didn't work, my dad used to hit me with a leather-bound copy of Grimm's Fairy Tales. All right. Guess that one didn't make it. You can strike <laughs> that from the record. <laughs> I, was, I did it so much better in the shower. It's when Roddy Piper gets all pensive and he talks about his fallen brothers and everything. And he's like... Oh, yeah. It's, That's... It's, 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 I got to be a little more, you know, there's times this week where I've done it, but this wasn't it. That's you got to go that's back really. and watch the him on HBO, the 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 whatever right, it was, the that's real the one, exactly. Exactly where it's just like you know, man. Like I don't even know what to, like all my friends are dead, man. You know, but it's right, like, right, right. That, that, <laughs> that era, that era, exactly. Yeah, so just, that whole thing, and plus the haunting of Roddy Piper with Adrian Adonis, and he's like, I come home, and you know, you know, yeah, we didn't have time for no uh, games when I was a kid, uh, you know. All right, guys. All right. Love you all. <laughs> Thank you, wrestling. <laughs> Thank you, wrestling world. <laughs> Glad right. I destroyed my appearance in the last one percent of it. Um. All right, guys. We will definitely all be in touch. Okay. Talk to you soon. Thanks for doing this day, Howard. All right, guys. Bye bye. Take it easy. <laughs> all right. Well, we're gonna wrap up holiday Star Wars uh, in a little bit. I got to review these fucking wrestling shows tonight. But uh, we're going to add one more person who could talk baseball with you guys. John, are you still there? Hello. You got a little less in than I did, and I barely got anything in. But uh, definitely some chemistry, Howard, and uh, and you, Mike. That, it's probably the uh, the uh, net amount of drugs we both done combined probably has <laughs> maybe has something to do with that. That and you know it's amazing, and it's, I'm embarrassed to admit that I still actually have the top ten from like last year when Cornette hosted, uh, where Howard was on there in full Howard mode, right down to Don Morocco. Uh, the that impression where he took a shit on a rainbow and wiped his ass with a handful of butterflies, which pops <laughs> me every time I hear it. Uh-huh. Well, let me add our last, uh, or at least I believe this will be the last person added who wants to talk some baseball, and what a perfect way to wrap things up than to 
talk baseball. Let me see if his name is here. I'm actually using the right keyboard this time. Now, last time he was on the show, which was the beginning of part one of opening day Star Wars, there was a weird echo issue, which made it difficult because Kevin Sullivan was also on the line and Kevin's audio is hit or miss. You never know what you're going to get, but let's see how this works out this time. Adding John McAdam, who opened opening day Star Wars to come on as our closer right here. Let's see if he's there. It is calling him right now. John McAdam. Yes, sir, Brian. How are you? There you are. You are our final guest on opening day Star Wars Extra Innings. On the line with you right now is Mike Sempervivi and someone who knows his baseball, Mr. Wrestling, John Arezzi. John Arezzi, how you doing? Hey, how are you doing, man? Good. To Good. Talk. I haven't talked to you since the 90s. My goodness. <laughs> I know, huh? And Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. This is actually perfect. You're coming on as the closer because there's us, you know, the three uh, hosts that are, are still here talking, and you have to face at least three hosts. Uh, I understand this year coming in as a closer to the 605 uh, opening day edition. <laughs> well, I I hate to break any news, but I'm the opener and the closer. I don't know if you can do that in baseball, but you can do that on the 605 now. I don't mean to, to be the guy who burst into the room and immediately changed the conversation, but I heard something absolutely crazy on my Twitter within the last half hour. We are start. We're, we're recording this on Wednesday. Baseball starts on Thursday. They still don't know how the postseason is going to be set up, and I am reading that the owners want to set up the playoffs or or have, just determine how the playoffs will be set up after the 60 game season well how do you do that i don't know brian if they do it you and i high five the mets and the red sox just made the playoffs no matter what (laughs) i mean i I thought you were gonna say what i just heard uh it was earlier because i hadn't seen this news that i heard that the blue jays were gonna potentially play in pittsburgh then i was told pittsburgh or baltimore and then i was just told i guess was it the governor pittsburgh's not allowing them in they're not no. playing in Pennsylvania. John, do you know what's going on with this? Uh, I don't have a place I've to heard play. Buffalo or oh, Nashville. Let, let me be a little more clear. John Arezzi, do you know what's going on with this? Oh. Uh, well, Pittsburgh, uh, they said no. The governor said no. Uh, Buffalo, from what I understand, is just not equipped for what they need. And now there's talk of Nashville because Nashville has a new state-of-the-art stadium uh, down there. So Nashville is a possibility, but uh, it's really sad that uh, the Toronto Blue Jays can't find a place to play ball this year. Well, it would make sense. I guess Nashville was that was going to be the hub of the uh, what would it be? The taxi, the, the 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 league taxi squad was going to be based out of down there. Yeah, all the free agent uh, ball players that will kind of be, you know, in a waiting area for those uh, teams that needed experienced guys to call up in case there were injuries. Uh, and I don't know if that has changed or not, but uh, I think Nashville makes sense for the Blue Jays to play there. Um, they're a town that's right for baseball, and they have the new facility, but uh, you just don't know. It's just kind of sad that uh, the Blue Jays can't find a home. And uh, speaking to my friend Greg Oliver up in Canada, he's like, well, we don't want any, anybody up here. <laughs> you know. And, and I guess they close the borders up, and they think it's too dangerous to fly all of these teams in and out of there. What are they saying in Nashville? I'm sorry, John. Let me just ask uh, John. I got to clarify which John I'm speaking to. Let me uh, ask John Arezzi a question. 
What are they saying in Nashville about the prospects to have a Major League Baseball team in Nashville? Well, they are now really going for it. I mean, the city is uh, for it. Uh, they have an office down there. Uh, it would be called the Nashville Stars. They opened up an office, uh, ironically, with Dave Dombrowski, who used to be with the Red Sox, I believe, and uh, Tony La Russa. Uh, I mean, so there's a there's an office opened up in Nashville uh, for a uh, for a potential expansion team to come to Nashville or to uh, get one of those teams that people always talk about that are not doing well in their city. Uh, to move to Nashville. So uh, I think that Nashville is going to have a major league franchise, uh, I would say, within this decade. Do you John, see- let, me, can I, let me just jump in there real quick. Just yeah. one question, because it, it came up in an article basically written about the feud that the Nationals have with the Orioles. And I can't remember if it was Sports Business Journal or The Athletic or where I had seen it. But I had just I kind of missed I must have missed some scuttlebutt in the Baltimore area about the possibility, even though it was, you know, I guess a very minimal one about I guess there were fears that the Angelos family, uh, the sons could pull the team and possibly go to Nashville. Now, it didn't seem like there was a ton to that. But was that just a one sided thing coming from Baltimore or did you ever hear that down there that? possibly of all of the teams, the Orioles, not, you know, a a Miami or whoever would be the team that would be ripe for the picking to move down. Uh, There have been reports that Baltimore could be one of those teams. I can't imagine the Orioles leaving. It's stunning. Yeah. It's uh... Mike, that means build us a new Camden Yards. Camden Yards is now 30 years old and we want a new stadium. That's all there is. I don't. I can't I, picture the I Orioles moving. I, yeah, I believe that's the case. But uh, the city of Nashville, the committee, the uh, Music City Baseball Group, is there. Offices are open. Uh, they had actually just met with folks from Gaylord Entertainment, which owns the Grand Ole Opry. So there is a there's a definite uh, there's definite momentum now for a, a team coming to uh, Music City. Well, two questions: Do you think Nashville will support a baseball team? You know, if a baseball team arrives there is it going to be like the colorado rockies where they sell out every game for years because people are so happy to have the team there and also john do you see nashville as a national league town or an american league town good question um i think nashville would support a team whether it is american or national league uh but i would see atlanta so close i would see nashville perhaps being an american league town and nashville supports its teams when it wins I mean, the uh, Predators, the NHL team, I mean, they're selling out all the time. Um, and the Titans, the, the attendance is based on how they're doing. Uh, the Nashville Sounds baseball team, the AAA organization uh, for the Texas Rangers, uh, they draw pretty well there. Now, John McAdam, I cut you off before, so feel free to cut me off now. Okay, no, I was just going to say it's it's kind of we were talking about the Blue Jays not being able to play. I mean, this the Canada does not want uh, even the ball players going in and out of the country. It's you know it's just funny how their priorities are their priorities versus American priorities. But I agree with John Arezzi. I mean, it's been pretty clear for the last three or four years the next city that is getting a team, whether it be through expansion, unlikely, or a team moving, much more likely is going to be national. Well, if Nashville gets a team, I mean, they have to get another team also, right? Usually they add two teams at a time. What other city would get a team? 
Well, Vegas would be screaming, you know, Vegas would be attractive, although ultimately I, I, you know, I'm I won't believe it with the Golden Knights until we're talking about them 10 years down the road that people are there for a game that doesn't matter in the middle of October. You know what I mean? Like I I'll believe it when I see it after that shine wears off and baseball wise, I'm sure they want to put one there. Uh, Why wouldn't you with the Raiders going there and. You know, but with that said, look at the housing market there. Look at some of the other things, including the fact that it's going to be a gazillion degrees. And, you know, is a retractable roof stadium as a dome stadium. Is that is that where you'd want it? And I, I don't know. You know, I know Montreal. People have talked about, you know, Quebec City and things like that. I I don't know. I would rather see contraction at this point. And even though I know we're not going to get that than to see teams be put in places that won't necessarily hold on to them for too long. I I don't know. You know, Nashville, I think, is good. But Oklahoma City, you know, Las Vegas, Montreal, places you've already been, I don't know. Portland's another one, I guess, that I don't know if they're back in the the, the move for, for baseball as well, too. But it's just... I don't know. I would rather see some teams go away, frankly, like your Miamis and teams like that, than see this whole pie get divvied up even more. And then you're adding two teams for really no reason whatsoever. Um, I would say that the, the you would add teams because you're adding revenue by having more teams, by having a, a bigger live gate, by creating more of a demand for television. I don't know what it's like anywhere else, but if there was a team in Vegas, I could totally see half of New England getting on a plane and saying, hey, let's go to Vegas and see the Red Sox. But that's see, that's where, you know, and I I guess I could see that. But that's where I see the Golden Knights turning into after a while is it's going to be a transient team almost. And not to say that that's necessarily a bad thing. Obviously, when you're in a a tourist destination, you want people to come in and and rep their team when they're in town or something like that or try to time it up. But it's like, you know, again, if that team is not winning in Vegas, how much interest will there be? You know, and I again, everything is still up in the air, but it's easy to do eight football games if you're Oakland, even if they suck it's still easier to do that than you're going to do you know 81 baseball games a year or 81 hockey games uh, you, you are absolutely correct. A, 88 versus 81 is a big difference, but the prime mover financially in all sports now is television. So the deal is, can you get enough people in Las Vegas at that moment to be tuned into the team? It will a Las Vegas team uh, create interest uh, through ESPN and ABC? Well, do you know? Well, you know where that's actually clutch. If they actually put a team there, every other person that's near that area that is a fan of another team who is trying to get extra innings will be happy because now there's no reason to black out the other six teams that are all around there. Because yeah. if you're in Vegas, you know, I don't know if they had changed that up, but you know, Arizona, Colorado, however that worked. Where I guess they, I guess they were in Colorado. They gave them that one, but then they blacked out everybody else. Huh? I did not know that. Yeah, it was. I think that it was the Dodgers, Oakland. You know, it was uh, the 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 four, you know, teams in in California, and then Arizona, and I believe I, again, I I think they were in the Colorado market. But I have the same sort of issue where I'm at because technically it's a a Phillies, Orioles, Nationals war zone where you know depending on which way the wind blows and and what direction you go, that something's going to be blocked out. Mike, I have a question for you. I've wondered about this. You've lived in you live in Maryland. Right now, I'm I'm actually in Delaware right now, just just over the like uh, basically as far east uh, as you can go in Delaware, right at the Maryland Delaware line, basically. 
All right. So I'm, I'm genuinely curious about this. I know you are a Washington Nationals fan. They are a, re- a very new team. Uh, they only moved, what, 15 years ago. Were you an Orioles fan before that? I was. I was a, a diehard Orioles fan before that. And... Okay, so I'm dying to know about this because there was talk – I don't know how serious it was like 25 years ago about the Expos relocating to Providence, Rhode Island. And I was like, gee, could I jump off the Red Sox and jump on this Providence team? What was it like for you changing allegiances as an adult? It sucked. It still excellent sucks now. I still actually, I, I still have a question. I have to say, yeah, and I still have guilt because it was always, you never change. You're going to be with them until the day you die. And what got me was I became a Knicks fan because of Patrick Ewing, because I was a Georgetown fan growing up down there. So I followed him to the Knicks, and I like Bernard King, too, and stuff like that, but I became a Knicks fan, and I had family up there, so it was easy to root for the Knicks and for the Rangers. You know, I I kept with the Orioles down here, but when they would not fire Isaiah Thomas, and it kind of got to the point where it's like, I like basketball, I like the NBA, but I'm not not that about it. (laughs) So it's like, you know, I can't, why am I throwing my money at this team anymore? And that's basically what it came to with the Orioles. Peter Angelo systematically took away so much of what made me a fan when John Miller wasn't, he wasn't Baltimore enough because he's doing all this other stuff and he's got to go. And Mel Proctor and John Lowenstein were booted off HTS and and he started putting people in that were true mouthpieces. Now, obviously, all of the announcers and all, of course, they were paid for and and brought in by the club and you didn't want them, you know, the club to get buried. But people didn't do that in Baltimore. But Peter Angelos took offense to everything and everything was a attack against him. And when they were making the same horrible decisions that the Yankees used to, where there was an owner and his family meddling along and not letting people do their jobs. And when did the Yankees start getting successful again? When like they got out of stick Michael's way and everything, you know, things started to open up and they when let Steinbrenner you know, the, the first- was suspended from baseball. Yeah, well, it was forced, yeah. but you know, they, then they couldn't get rid of Bernie and he couldn't, he couldn't make these rash decisions. And unfortunately it just, over time, it just, my love atrophied. And I was from the DC area. Anyway, I grew up listening to the Orioles on WTOP, the whole reason. And this is another thing for people in Baltimore that it was one thing when like Edward Bennett Williams and when those people didn't allow Baltimore on the jersey because you wanted to play yourself as, as as the Washington team as well, too. We're a regional team. But when Angelos, who claimed all of this Baltimore, wouldn't do it, it was like, then what are you really? And that's, you know, you were never Washington's team. They would always lie about the number of 25 percent of the people from every game come up from D.C. That bullshit. No, they didn't. Maybe on the weekend that was the case, but that was never true. And they were never people in D.C. The the the, the shadows hadn't gone from the senators for long enough. You know, it just you know, the last it was only about 20 years from the time, I guess, the the, the senators left for the second time. You know, and the Orioles successes, it just it wasn't it wasn't enough time. So for me, even though I have a lot of guilt, even though I can tell you every single player that played for the Orioles from, you know, 82 to to 92, it just I started looking at it where why am I uh, why am I such a a victim to this laundry? Why am I such a why do I keep giving people money? The only thing I can do is stop giving you my money. That's the only thing I can do is stop talking about you and stop giving you my money. And I know it's a small thing and people say, well, that doesn't matter. I guess maybe not. 
But you see how many people are in the stands at Oriole games now and what it's turned into after all those years of being sold out. The Redskins go through the same thing, you know, and it, and it just I, I just gave up. And when the Expos moved, I just figured, OK, this is my time. If I don't do it now, I'll be rooting for the Orioles forever, but I'm going to be miserable. And how things turned out, you know, I'd be pretty miserable right now. Well, you know, bad yeah. ownership causes those kind of feelings. I mean, John and I have the Will Ponds. Yeah. And you get short bursts of a good team. But meanwhile, you always know that it's the Will Ponds and it bothers you. And when the Mets are successful, you'll still have people calling WFAN and saying they need new owners because we know the truth of it. And when things bottom out, you really hear it from people. We're finally now at a point where it looks like, I mean, it's a guarantee. Unless something crazy happens, we're going to have new owners for the team. Probably somewhat, you know, shortly after the season ends. And it's an exciting period of time. Now, I can't imagine, you know, that's the thing. The Wilpons were awful, but I never jumped off the Mets bat. I never said, you know what, that's it. I'm a Yankee fan. I couldn't even fathom that. But you just... It's a weird feeling liking a team and having owners that you hate, that you absolutely hate. John, what do you think about all this? John Arezzi. Uh, if if you're talking, you're on mute. Perhaps you're not talking. Am I talking? <laughs> you are talking. Hey, look, I'll say this again. I've been told, you know, we get John back on there is I feel guilt. I, again, I still feel guilty. I, again, I, and it's not, I, I, with the Knicks, I don't because it was like, I'm going to give you chances. And if you do this to hell with you, but with the Orioles where there was more of an attachment, like I couldn't in my football team, you know, the reason the, the Colts left. So I picked the team and I've actually stuck with the Atlanta Falcons ever since they were the team at the top of the alphabet at the time. Thank God Arizona was still in St. Louis then. But that's who I picked when the Colts left town on the Mayflower bands. And that's what I did. And but also the difference between me and is football is my number one sport. Like I love football. I love boxing. I love wrestling. And as much as I love baseball and as much as I love basketball and every other sport under the sun and will always have a rooting interest in it. Football is still my number one. And I don't think at this point I could ever see myself going away from Atlanta where you know, it was a little bit easier, I guess, for the, to do it with certainly with basketball, certainly with the Dolans and the Knicks. That was absolutely easy to do. But with the Orioles, it still hurt because I love the city and the tradition and everything that goes with it. But again, the only way you can vote against people like this is with your wallet. And even if you don't turn you know, to me, I couldn't become a Yankee fan. Like I, I, I couldn't do that. I don't think, you know, to me, it was like the Expos were in town. You're starting from a ground zero, like somebody that can waffle. Like if you're, you hate the Cubs ownership and you, I don't know if I could flip around and root for the white Sox. like that it, to me is now that's getting a little too incestuous. I'm drawing the line there. I knew a guy who drove one of the Mayflower trucks, but anyway, I get where you're coming from because we moved from Queens when I was 10 years old in 1975, and I was a diehard Mets fan as a little kid, and when we moved up here, it was like, okay, following the Mets, they'd be on TV twice a year, and you can read about them in the sporting news, and to this day, I feel like, you know, wow, it was like my my first wife who I kind of blew off, and, you know, it, it's still, I, I feel a little tiny bit like a traitor for just not be, continuing to be a Mets fan. But I'm glad I made the right decision. <laughs> you, are, you are a traitor. You are a traitor. I think if the, Mets, if the Mets didn't have Doug Flynn, he probably would have stayed a Met fan. 
<laughs> well, the Mets are fun for me because growing up where I did, and I've kind of talked about this before in the 605, you know, when my father passed away, we had moved to basically it was Howard County, uh, Maryland, which was really rural. And I, you know, I was 12 years old. I had nowhere. There was nothing around, you know, so it was like I was stuck in the house. So like wrestling was a you know, it was always a positive influence to fall in at that time and a good distraction. But radio loving that, like one of the good parts about being there was I got WFAN in from the time the sun went down until a little bit, maybe nine o'clock in the morning through Imus. So it's like as far as the Mets go, I always listen to the Mets and having WOR, you know, on, on cable, they were they were so easily accessible. And that 86 team, you know, 86 and 80, 84, 86, 88, you know, the, the Mets were, you know, right up until the, the David Cohn era. I mean, I, I think I probably I'm not saying I watched the Mets as much as the Orioles, but I almost followed them as much just because they were just so accessible on WFAN. I love Doug Flynn. Oh, come on. Uh, a I, <laughs> I used to get him on cable. The guy was was a great second baseman. He was really exciting. A little bit of an update. John Arezzi had a Wi-Fi issue because apparently he has the storm that we had here two and a half hours ago when we started this show, Mike. <laughs> the storm that was causing all the noise issues and everything on this end is now on Long Island, and it knocked out John's Wi-Fi. We're going to try to get him back on before we wrap things up in a little bit. But uh, we'll see what happens there. Now, 84 Mets is an interesting team because no one expected them to be what they were. They were still a bottom of the division team the year before, even though they added Keith Hernandez. They brought up Daryl Strawberry. 84, you get Davey Johnson. You have Strawberry. You have Keith Hernandez now for a whole season. Davey convinces Frank Cashin to allow him to bring Dwight Gooden to the majors. And they went over 90 games. I mean, it's one of the most stunning turnarounds in baseball history, I think. Yeah, a lot of that is attributable to Davey Johnson. Bill James wrote about it. Uh, Davey Johnson, you know, wasn't the kind of manager who's like, oh, you know, I think these guys, they can be taught how to win. He's like, hey, these guys stink and they're being shown the door and we're bringing up the guys from Tidewater. That was, man, there was uh, Davey Johnson's firing in, in Baltimore. You know, there's another great example of one of the things that just was like, is the straw starting to get pulled and got shorter and shorter? You know, you had Gillick and Malone in the front office. You ran them both out. It was just, it was one thing after another. You bring up Davey Johnson, you know, who was, you know, again, I know he's not recognized as an Oriole. People in Baltimore recognize him as an, as an Oriole, but, you know, just another one of those names that unfortunately at a bad time for the Orioles got run off. Other than the Dodgers, Davey Johnson won everywhere he went. Yes. And, you know, yeah. by the way, you bring up Bill James, Davey Johnson. I don't necessarily want to say he was into sabermetrics, but he was one of the first guys because, you know, he was he like, went to school to learn computers in the offseason. Like, you know, whatever, in like 1970, he was one of the first guys to figure out advanced analytics and try to apply it to his team. You know, when he wasn't drinking a beer, <laughs> he was a heck of a ball player during his day, too. I am oh hell yeah, and that's how most Oriole fans remember him is is you know second base. It's you know is he one of you know where do you put him on the list of great Orioles second baseman? I'm going to read this on the air. John Arezzi has texted me his Wi-Fi is down. There's a storm right now on Long Island. His World Series prediction: Yankees over Dodgers. I maybe that's why he left the show. You know he knew how disappointed I would be <laughs> to hear that. 
Guys, uh, well, John, we talked about it a little bit in part one, and actually you didn't get to give your prediction until we were off air. I kind of revealed it a little earlier, but who do you predict to win the World Series? I, before Kevin Sullivan even said it, I was going with the Tampa Bay Rays, a team with no, a team with no fans that no one cares about them. I predict is going to win the World Series. I would have said that had the season opened in April. They won 97 games last year. They are very young. They've got a good farm system. They're going to get help. I think they're going to be the best team in baseball this year. The best team in baseball does not always win the World Series, and they they have to beat the Yankees to win the division. However, that's going to be set up but I, I look at that team and i see the best team in baseball mike who's gonna win the world series you know i hate to sound like everybody else you know because everybody seems to be picking the yankees and the dodgers but as it stands right now i'm going with the yankees and the dodgers and i'll go with the dodgers you know just too deep too good um and, but we'll see i mean this is such a weird year because like Tampa, I mean, Tampa not only is not not only a great pick, Oakland's a great pick. You know, Arizona, if if anybody's going to upset the apple cart in the West, you know, or in the National League, it could be Arizona. You know, I just there's everything is so because it's a sprint and we don't know. I mean, pitching wise, it's just it's going to be fascinating. You know, you can't get into a hole early. So who knows what's actually going to happen? But you know, teams like Oakland and Tampa, I could see being, again, if it ends up being one of them and not New York, I'll be completely happy about that. <laughs> you know, if they, less Yankees, less Houston, the better. And, you know, I could absolutely see both of those, but I'll be as generic as I possibly can and, and go with the Dodgers over the Yankees. Well, Brian, think, how about you? Who do you think is going to win the World Series this year? We already know it's going to be the Mets. But listen, guys, <laughs> of course, <laughs> before we wrap up a few things, John, what are your thoughts Mookie Betts' 12-year deal with the Dodgers. 27 years old, 12-year deal through 2032. What do you think? Well, that's a hot button issue around here. As you know, Mookie Betts just left the Red Sox via trade. Um, everyone's like, why couldn't the Red Sox just sign him to this deal instead of trading him for prospects? Um, I love Mookie. He was perfect for Fenway. He had the arm to play right field, and he had the wheels to play center field. And right field in Fenway Park is gigantic. So he was a perfect piece here. On the other hand, the Dodgers signed him for, for 12 years, which means so it's essentially a 13 year deal with the extension. They're going to have to pay Mookie Betts $30 million when he's 35 years old, then again when he's 36, then again when he's 37, then again when he's 38, then again for the last time when he's 39. I am glad another team signed him to that deal. I wish him luck, but there's no, I mean, it's just a matter of time. The only question is, when does this become a bad contract? Now, if would you sign anyone to a contract over seven years? Uh, I mean, given it's either you sign someone to deal more than seven years or you don't get premium free agents. Uh, I'm not sure where that line is for me. It probably has more to do with the player's age at the end of the contract and the length length of the contract itself. But there's no way I would guarantee long-term a guy literally into his 40th birthday. Mike, what do you think? Because obviously the idea of signing one of your top guys to a long contract extension has come up in the past with the Nationals. You got Steven Strasburg. You didn't get Bryce Harper. I mean, it worked out well for you. But what are your thoughts about Mookie Betts and just in general, 
these long-term contracts? Well, you know, there was a good example of, you know, discipline on the Nationals' behalf, and I I think it was really easy, too, because I think, obviously, the, the Bryce's side way overplayed his hand as far as interest goes, and you could talk about collusion or whatever it was, but... You know, it's, it was that Phillies deal was the only deal he was going to get that was going to be anything like that. And he got it and they they didn't bow to any pressure and they stood off of it because there were other people, obviously, that they were going to have to sign. But I think when you do that past seven years, I don't know how you can do that and legitimately think that whoever you're signing is going to see the back half of that contract. You know, I, I just I don't at this point, I just don't fathom how you do that. <laughs> you know, I, I and I guess. I guess it all depends on how important and the age, like you said, the age at which that person is going to be done and the value that that person could also bring to your city on a different level. You know what I mean? As far as how, you know, Adam Jones and the Orioles years ago, like if you would have said, you know, I'm trying to think of what deal he ended up getting, you know, from them at the time. But it was like at that point, if you would have said 10 years on him, I would have said, OK, because of what he actually meant for the city. And it was the one good thing that he had, you know, that they had there and everything. But, you know, in general, no, I mean, these contracts never play themselves out. You know, again, did has look at some of the look at some look at Pujols as an example like you know what how long was that deal initially was that 10 years I believe so you know ten, and again it's like you know what you were going to get on the back half of that and again it's just it's they're too long and they're again these contracts end up being dragged out for you know forever anyway Benia style you know and people always forget about Benia he's still getting paid by the Orioles too and forget about the Mets deal he's got the Oriole deal he's still getting paid on for another couple of years as well too before the Met deal dies so I mean uh, again I just look at these and go to me you're never you cannot sign any of these or if you sign anyone you can't I, to me there's no way you think you're going to get the back half of that deal out of any of them i don't care how old they are let me throw this in really quick um i think the orioles should have never made harper an offer because they have too many good corner outfielders coming up they've got they've already got Juan soto and who else do they have in the in the corner that's good who am i forgetting well adam eaton right now but they the have Nationals, the Robles. not the orioles I'm sorry, the Nationals. My my bad. Well, they got Victor. I mean, Victor Robles, and then you know Soto came up to play left, and then they got Adam Eaton and right, and they got Michael Taylor, and uh, you know I guess Andrew Stevenson's probably going to make the team there. But it's like, yeah, I mean, they're loaded down with talent, and not only did they have those guys coming up, you were going to have to take care of Trey Turner. You you weren't sure if you were going to have to take care of of Rendon, but you ha- you know you had the Strasburg deal. You got Scherzer coming up, and it's like you can't. You know, something was going to have to give, and thank God it worked out for us, and and it's worked out that way. Now we'll see. You know, Carter Keeboom is going to have a lot on him, and this is a pipe dream, but I don't think it's that far out of the realm of possibility where if Keeboom doesn't start well and you feel the need where you're going to have to move Turner to third or Castro to third or Cabrera and – you know, that mix up, do you start looking at Lindor if you feel as though Turner can play third base or move him to second because Castro's not going to be for, there forever? It's, you know, do you go in that direction and give up some of that pitching that you have because you have such a bountiful amount of it if the Indians get off to a shitty start? Because that's going to be interesting, too, as far as who's going to make deals in this whole, you know, situation and whether yeah. it's going to be worth it or not to make deals. 
Hey, guys, you know, I want to say this. If I could just jump in real quick, I just want to, you know, I'm, John Arezzi's Wi Fi is back up. So before we wrap things up, I'm going to add him so he could be here for the end. But after you're done with your point, John, here's a question I want you guys to answer. Do you think the Cardinals bring back pool holes now that they have a DH in the National League? But, John, go with what you were saying. Okay, I just want to make this quick point. Like, the Pujols deal was terrible. We kind of all knew it was going to be a terrible deal from day one because players like Pujols tend to age worse than a player like Mookie Betts. He is a – Betts is a still a young player with young player skills. So that's like the one ray of hope that the Dodgers have um, when this deal, like, gets near its end. Pujols. Does he go back to the Cardinals? Depends on how much money. I mean, honestly, it really does. I, I the other thing is going to be too is people that talked about is the National League going to was this enough? At some point, the DH was going to come. That's what everybody keeps saying. Is this the reason? Is this the reason now it's going to stay? Is this going to happen? If it, that's going to be the case from this point on, that we're sticking with the DH, absolutely, I could see him come back. You know, it's some negotiated deal because, yeah, I mean, it would just it would make too much sense if you can work something out. Absolutely, it's why Zimmerman's going to be back. You know, for the Nationals, it's why a lot of guys are probably going to have a little bit of an extension to their career. But you know, if they decide nope. that it's not going to happen and it's going to be gone again, then you know that may change things. John Arezzi oh. is back on the line for the end of this show. And uh, John McAdam, I know we just cut you off let you finish your thought. John, what we're talking about is, well, Albert Pujols return to the St. Louis Cardinals now that there is a DH in the National League. John McAdam, I'll go back to you. Um, if the Cardinals re-sign Pujols and put him at DH, they might as well print on all of their tickets. We're not serious about winning baseball games. Pujols does not hit well enough at right now to play first base for the angels. He does not hit well enough to DH. It would be a sentimental move. And once again, the Cardinals are putting, you know, that, that sentimentality ahead of winning games. <clears throat> now, before we had the latest storm and there's been a few storms on this episode and we lost John Arezzi, John, we were talking about the will ponds and we were talking about the Mets. What are your thoughts about the idea that we'll have new owners? I must say, I, I've said it before. I hope it's not A-Rod and J-Lo. I think that'll be like having the McCourts, but uh, more scandalous. But what are your thoughts about the last year of the Wilpons and being a Met fan in the era of Wilpon ownership? Well, it's been a rough go of it, being a Mets fan after Doubleday got out and gave Wilpon full uh, control. So we've been going through uh, a hellacious ownership for many, many years. And as much as I uh, hold out much hope for the next ownership group, and I am hoping it's not A-Rod and J-Lo, but the Wilpons always find a way to, to screw it up and they retain ownership. So I'm hoping that's not the case. I'm hoping that are in a place now that they have to get rid of the team. And then, and then the Mets can really be what they're supposed to be. They're a New York team. They're in the number one market. I mean, the fan base is there. We're hungry for consistency. And uh, we're just praying that, you know, in 2021, that there's new ownership and that uh, the Mets can achieve what uh, uh, we all hope they can. 
I think there's no reason for the Mets to be as, as bad as they have been historically. Um, if, if you're a Mets fan, my advice would be like go with a strategy or support a strategy where, okay, you're down for a couple of years, you're building up a farm system, and then when you've got the pieces in place, start citing the big name free agents. Well, we have some yeah. good guys. I mean, John, I'm sorry to cut you off, but we have some good guys that have come out of the minors in the last few years. Jeff McNeil and Pete Alonzo being case in point, but John Rezzi, go ahead. No, I mean, the, we have Alonzo. We have some good players. we got McNeil. Uh, DeGrom is still in his prime. Hopefully Noah's going to come back. So I think there's a great nucleus here. Conforto is, a, is another player. We have the nucleus. We need a couple of good pieces. And uh, I think we need a, a, a really strong catcher. Um, I'm still hoping that we get a really good quality third baseman. Uh, so I think we have a, the potential of really having a great winning team for many years if they could just get a few more pieces added. You don't like J.D. Davis at third base? I'm okay with J.D., but, you know, um, we'll see how what this year brings, you know. Well, the problem uh, is Jeff McNeil should be at second base. Robinson Cano shouldn't be there. This problem, right? Cano, Cano, and Diaz. I hate that. I hate. I hate having both of them on the team. Your defense sucks. <laughs> there it is, Robinson Cano. Stop doing stuff like that. Yeah, we got. Yeah, I mean that's the team has had this had this way of uh, trading incredibly talented young players for has-beens. I mean, that's been happening since well before the Wilpons. You could go back and you could look at the Jim Fergosi for Nolan Ryan trade. You could look at Amos Otis for Joe Foy. You could look at so many trades that they made that were just horrible on the long term. You know what? I would have traded Nolan Ryan. He threw too many walks. He was throwing like six or seven walks per nine innings. I would, And it's the National League in the 60s. You know, it, it's... A big ballpark, you know, not too too many runs being scored. I would have gotten rid of him. I admit it. Throw yeah. strikes or get out of here. Would you have traded him for Jim Fergosi? Uh, Jim Fergosi was good until he got to New York. I'm not saying it was a good trade, but yeah, Mickey Lowlich for Rusty Staub. Mickey Lowlich for Rusty Staub. What about that one? That was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> how about uh, how about uh, who'd we trade um, uh, for that guy from the Phillies? Oh, uh, Dykstra and Roger McDowell for Juan Samuel, who yeah, yeah, yeah. they wanted to convert into an outfielder. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess, you know, Mets fans are cursed in, in some ways because we've made some horrible moves, but we have horrible ownership. And Scott uh, Casimir for Victor Zambrano. There you go. There's another one. There you go. <laughs> Big contract for George Foster when he was clearly on his way out. But you know what? But that's a little different. Uh, yeah. You know what, George Foster, though, that was almost like a sign that they were sending the fans that, look, we're serious. We'll spend money on free agents. We'll bring in Foster. We'll bring in someone who hit all those home runs. Now, it didn't end well. And, you know, I kind of look at Cano in a way as being like our George Foster right now. Yeah. And that he's on the team. Hopefully they release him halfway through the season and Lee Mazzilli comes back. I mean, that's really how, <laughs> that's really how I look at it. <laughs> no, that trade, Brody Van Wagenen gets credit for letting Alonzo come up at the start of the season and play the full year because the Wilpons would have wanted to keep him down until they can get another year 
on him. So he would have come up in whatever, May. And thank God they didn't because we had a very special season with Alonzo. I remember telling you, John uh, McAdam, that Alonzo's going to hit all these home runs. And you said, nah, he did it in the minor leagues. He won't do it here. And you admit it. You wrote to me one day, you were wrong. I, you Excuse me. You said I was wrong about, uh, about Alonzo. You were right. I should have listened. That wouldn't have happened uh, in most years in Mets history. They would have kept him down for a couple months. Other than that, though, he traded Justin uh, Kalanick for Robinson Cano and Diaz, who was, he had the single worst season I've ever seen a closer have in New York. And I've seen all the bad ones. And I hated John Franco. And I thought Benitez gets too much uh, heat because he had some, you know, if we needed to close out the Brewers in May, Benitez was your guy. Yes. But the high pressure situations, he couldn't do it. But I've seen every one of the big closers. We had K-Rod. We had all these guys. I saw Jesse Orozco. We could all talk about how much we love him now. He was messy Jesse. I saw yeah. Doug Sisk. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I've seen all these guys. Diaz had the worst season I've ever seen a closer have. Ever. And you could tell by his body language. You just knew it was going to happen. And they kept sending him out there. And it drove me insane. And then you you just, I saw a video of the kid they traded for Diaz and Cano hitting a home run. Again, it's it's summer camp, spring training. And I said, my God, they traded this kid for these two guys who gave us nothing. And more than likely, they're not going to give us anything. He signed Jed Lowry, who mm. I think played, I don't know, four or five games in September. And then was... And he would play the did he yeah what yeah less than a handful of games and he's out again and he's out again he's out again it's been it's not April it's it's technically <laughs> the middle of this season if it was a real season out with the same injury he was out with originally we haven't gotten to see him don't forget the wild boar man the wild boar man <laughs> Cespedes <laughs> well, I'm not gonna blame Van Wagenen for that no 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 but he's still that's another Mets curse you know the guy. Falls in a hole after being chased by a wild boar. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is a story that only happens with the Mets. There's a thing sometimes you see on Twitter. It's like Mets. It's like a Met tournament of like ridiculous scandals. You ever see that? No. Let me I'd see like if, to you guys talk for a second before we wrap up. I have to find this. Let me see if I can find this. Well, I hope he brings up Cleon Jones. Oh my goodness. Cleon. Yeah. Marijuana in the van. <laughs> Well, David Cohn uh, relieving himself in the bullpen. David Cohn, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. The a- worst part about Cano is that they took on that contract. They took on the end of that contract, which was r- ridiculous to start with. And they're trying to, you know, always Robinson Cano from the Yankees. Remember him? He's with us now. Once again, you are not prioritizing winning ball games. No, I mean, Cano, we have four years on that contract. It's over at 2024, so uh, we're stuck with it. That's brutal. It's brutal. So, uh, yeah, I mean, but I'm, you know, I bleed orange and blue, as they say, and I uh, I always uh, wonder what would have been when I went to my first Major League Baseball game on July 3rd, 1966. My uncle took me to a Mets game, and he was a diehard Yankees game. So I always wonder if he would have taken me across town to the Bronx if my life growing up and as an adult and now as uh, a senior citizen would have been happier. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I found I, this. I found this. This is the Mets all time misery madness. Instead of March madness, someone did this. 
So here's the first round. Beltran caught looking. Again, Beltran, we ended the 2006 season with him watching a strike go by. <laughs> Cutting Justin Turner. So some baseball moves to start. The eighth seed, Kevin Mitchell decapitate, decapitates a cat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. The ninth seed, K-Rod beats up father-in-law. After that, we have Juaner Sanchez cab ride crash. For those of you who don't remember, Juaner Sanchez was having a great year in 2006. Took a late yeah. night cab ride in Florida. Never was the same ever again. Blew so many games for us in 2007, especially 2008, the year we got Johan. Anna Benson, Mrs. Claus outfit when she dressed as Santa Claus's wife and it was a little too That's scandalous. Right. The fourth and bench was too much. The fourth seed, Jason Bay. That's all it says. It's just Jason Bay. Oof. The thirteenth seed, uh, Brandon Nimmo undercooking chicken. That's when he got food poisoning. <laughs> uh, number six, the Shea ceremony after elimination. Remember when they had the Shea goodbye ceremony, and the Mets just got eliminated earlier that day. It was the saddest ceremony of all time when they introduced Howard Johnson. He's crying with all the legends of the Mets. Uh, number 11, batting out of order versus the Reds. The third seed, Mr. Met flipping off fans. The 14th seed, Kaz Matsui anal fissures. <laughs> Here's one of my favorites. Number seven, the Mike Piazza not gay press conference. When he had to hold the press conference to announce he wasn't gay. Uh, number the 10 seed, uh, Matt Harvey, urinary tract infection from not peeing. Oh, here's one that I forgot about. The second seed, the dildo in Kevin Huwecki's locker. The 15th seed, Scott Casimir trade. The number one seed, actually, Lucas Duda errant World Series throw in game five. Oh. Here's one I forgot about. Trading Marlon Bird on his shirt night. Of course, <laughs> the 1986 brawl with the Houston police. Noah refuses an MRI and then tears his lat. Uh, home runs off Familia. Brett Saberhagen, Bleach, Super Soaker. That's all it says. Oh, that's right. Oh, my God. Can't my, oh, wow. One. David writes Spinal Stenosis. Brody managing from his couch. Ike Davis's Valley Fever. Ike Davis was going to be our first baseman of the future. Looked so good his rookie year. Got injured by uh, a collision with David Wright. And then this Valley Fever just ended it for him. How can you forget this? NLCS 1999. The card game in the locker room with Benia and Ricky Henderson. Henderson. <laughs> While the team's on the field losing. Luis Castillo dropping the pop-up against the Yankees. Carlos Beltran on the list again. His secret knee surgery that he didn't tell the, knee, the team about. We have Generation K. Here's one of my favorites. Tony Bernazard fighting a minor leaguer. Tony Bernazard was, I believe, the director of minor league uh, of player Later. development. And there were multiple instances, including him ripping his clothes off and yelling at the players. Uh, of course, Bobby Benilla's contract. Benny Agbayani steals a ball back from the fan. Oh, my God. Benny Agbayani. <laughs> uh, in the second bracket, oh, I guess there's another number one scene here. Bernie Madoff. Jerry Blevins falls off curb, breaks arm. The Keith Hernandez-Darryl Strawberry picture day fight. 
<laughs> Shea Stadium congratulates Boston on their World Series victory right before they don't have that victory. Of course, the Wilmer Flores crying and the 90 wasn't traded. The fiasco where Lasting Millage got in trouble for high-fiving fans after his first ever Major League home run. Doc Gooden missing the 1986 championship parade because he was in a crack house. Noah Syndergaard on the list again for suffering hand, foot, and mouth disease. Can't forget about Vince Coleman throwing fireworkers into the crowd. <laughs> Excuse me, firecrackers into the crowd. Uh, yes. <laughs> the Steve Cohen non-sale. Kenny Rogers ending the 99 season with a walk. David Wright throws out Noah's lunch. I don't even remember what that is. Jeff Wilpon firing a pregnant employee. The Mickey and Vargas versus Tim Healy saga. I'm not exactly sure. I don't remember exactly what that was. All about the F-bombs. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Well, here's John's favorite. Cespedes trampled by a wild boar. (laughs) Henry Mejia's three, three PED suspensions. Jesus. The 2007 collapse. Bobby Parnell blows save, needs Tommy John surgery. Vince Coleman injuring Dwight Gooden while practicing his golf swing, hitting Dwight Gooden in the arm. Harvey misses game hungover and heartbroken. That was after he broke up with a Victoria's Secret model. Bob Ojeda's gardening accident. You may remember that. That's where he chopped off the top of his finger. Finger, yeah. <laughs> Omar Benaya, Adam Rubin. In quotes, has lobby. I don't know. Do you guys know about this that uh, aren't Met fans? Mm-mm. After Tony Bernazar got fired for multiple instances, including ripping his clothes off and challenging the minor leaguers to fight him, Omar Minaya held a press conference and blamed it all on Daily News reporter Adam Rubin, saying that Adam Rubin was lobbying, but the way he said it was, he has lobby for a job, for Tony Bernazar's job. Adam Rubin was in the room. It's all on film. It was on TV live. You see him like, as soon as he hears his name, he looks around and he's like, what the hell's going on here? And then he's like, are you really saying that I cost him his job because I wanted to take his job? It's one of the most surreal things ever. Go Google it. The Has Lobby press conference. Can't forget about letting Tom Seaver go twice, not protecting him on the roster and letting the White Sox claim him after the 83 season. Of course, the, what is this? 2002 players sneaking weed into Shea Stadium. Mets list alive 1969 players is dead. That was a couple of years ago. I remember that. Beltran hired and fired before opening day. Letting Ryan Church fly concussed. Having an agent as a GM. The Bobby V dugout mustache disguise. There it is. (laughs) David Cohn. Bullpen masturbation. Willie Randolph at 3 a.m. in California and, of course, City Field's original design, which was naturally for the Mets, honoring the Dodgers. And uh, that's... There's so many other scandals. Oh, I still feel like we're missing some. The Jordan, time we got, uh, we got Craig Swan for Tom Seaver in that big trade, and no, then he... Pat Zachary. Was, Pat Zachary. And didn't he kick the step and broke his foot? Or That's right. I think he was leading the, if he wasn't leading the league, he was leaving, leading the team in ERA when that happened. Uh, but that did happen. Can't forget about George Foster saying that the Mets are racist and mm-hmm. that's why there aren't any black guys on the team. They release him in the outfield at the time. Daryl Strawberry and Mookie Wilson 
with Kevin Mitchell as the uh, guy who could play infield and outfield. It was one of the most ridiculous. They replaced him with Mookie in the outfield. <laughs> I mean, it's just it, every year there's tons of scandals. It's so ridiculous. Like I said, some of these are pretty light. There have been so many more than this. But that's being a Met fan. That's life. It builds character. It's great to be a Mets fan. <laughs> but you know what? They're, they're a relatively new team. Look at it that way. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's true. That's a nice way to look at it. It doesn't even have some of those trades. Uh, you know, the, yeah. the, the M. Donald Grant having it leaked to the press that the reason Tom Seaver won't sign is because his wife is jealous of Nolan Ryan's wife. Yes, that's what and Dick Young wrote the column, which that's right. Which that's why Seaver was like, I'm out of here. That Get me it. out of here. That was when Seaver demanded the trade. He's like, I'm out of here. What about the mascot that was the uh, was the jackass? Metal. Metal the mule. Yeah. Metal the mule. <laughs> Can't forget about that. I mean, <laughs> metal the mule. Whose idea was that? Awful. Uh, Dayrolay, uh, Joan Payson's daughter, who took over the team after yeah. she passed. Did you ever have any interaction with them when you were working for the Mets? With the Dayrolays, or yeah. Cause- I- 1981, that was when the, the, the sale had taken place. Okay, you but, know what? It, I was thinking of that game in 79 where I saw you on the field for the 69 reunion. That's what made me think. Yeah, uh, yeah it press passes and back in 79, actually. Yeah, and it was on that 10-year reunion. It was cool. Wow. Well, gentlemen, I think with this, it's time to wrap things up. I'm always positive about the Mets, and then I just read 64 reasons why they have all these scandals. Can you end this with a, a highlight package of Bob Murphy's best calls uh, where he is coughing and uh, <laughs> falling you know all over himself? You know what? I, I'm not going to end with that, but let me uh, let me play some of these. I will say my favorite Ralph Kiner flub is one I've never seen on video, but I heard live, which was the Mets were playing the Astros. And he said, you know, now at bat, Jeff Baghdad. That's still my, that's still my very favorite one. <laughs> Uh, let me see. Ralph Kiner Mets funny. Let's see if that brings it up. Ralph Kiner gets confused in the booth. The best of Ralph Kiner. Here we go. Let's uh play this for a minute. Uh, it's I think this is it. Can't get to it. He did get it. Daddy Heat made a shoestring catch and a great play to take at least a base it away. Maybe more than a single. Probably a double. Slider hit into right center field, and he a long way to go. He gets there. So two plays by. All right, I don't think that was the right one because that was just. That was just. uh, I'm echoing. I'm echoing. What the hell is going? What the hell is going? (laughs) Does anyone else hear an echo? echo? Oh, I do. Testing. Oh, now it's gone. That's better. That's gone. Whose fault was that? The ghost of Bob Murphy. The ghost of Bob Murphy. <laughs> I just saw this video of Ralph Kiner highlights, and now all of a sudden it's not coming up. Hold on. I'm going to give us one more shot. Ralph Kiner highlight. My favorite Bob Murphy story, I saw it live. It was after a game in the 90s. It was the Mets versus the Braves, and uh, I was waiting out of the uh, out by the exit with my little brother. He wanted to get some autographs. And uh, we got some autographs. Don Sutton came out really nice. He said, if you walk with me, I'll sign whatever you want. And that's what it was. He just wanted to get to his car, but it would sign whatever he wanted. Bob Murphy came out stinking of whiskey. And 
my <laughs> me and my little brother are waiting for him to come near us, but there's this other little kid that gets in front and says, you know, Mr. Murphy. It sounded like George from Lindenhurst. Mr. Murphy, can I have your autograph? He said, not today, pal. To this kid. This kid was like, you know, six years old. Not today, pal. Bob Murphy. Can I just interrupt for one second about Bob Murphy? Please. I just found something that I think you'll find interesting. An interview I did with Bob back in uh, 1979. About 10 minutes of Bob. Did he just, was he, I guess he was there. How long? God, was he there for who was the, the main guy? Was it Lindsey Nelson or was it him? It was Lindsey Nelson, Ralph Kiner, and Bob. And uh, Lindsey left first, and then Bob uh, stayed until after '86, I believe. And then Ralph finished it up, and he was half senile and couldn't talk anymore either. But well, I, I remember I get Bob was there into the 2000s. I guess even though I guess Gary Cohn would do more of the games, just because I remember on it was on Imus where they. It was the the highlight reel that they said don't play, and they played it, and it was just it was every every flub in the world that Bob Murphy ever had, and it was hilarious, but it was also brutal on whatever day it was that they were actually going to honor him, or it was around that time, which it was a very imus move, but it was like oh no, it was brutal, but hilariously brutal. Here's some yeah, just, here's some Connor. Yeah. Or Carlos, dude. What I say, Bo? Yeah, Bo, the catcher of. Manager of the New York Mets, Jim Fanning, took over for, I should say, for the Montreal Ex Expos, took over for uh, Bill Bearden, who was manager until just about a month ago. Infield is in, and there's a drive, a great play out of uh, Diane Grayson. How did he catch that ball? And again, he gets in the kitchen of the batter. This one popped up in the shallow center, and a diving try by Giles, and he caught that ball. Did he? No, he didn't. Here we go <laughs> to the top of the seventh inning. Mike Torres doing a fine job. And a guy who also does a fine job back for the play-by-play, -play, Ralph Kiner. Thank you very much, Tim McC McCarver. <laughs> Excuse me. The Mets are waiting, awaiting the arrival of Keith Hernandez. Let's go downstairs right now as our Cole Hurt, Bud Harrelson uh, hosts, hosts Excuse me, Frank Howard. Well, you'll get it right, Ralph, eventually. We got. And he hits it out to left field. It's way back. It could be gone. It's going. It is gone. Goodbye. Daryl Strawberry with a love opposite field home run in the Mets lead three to two. Oh, boy. Durrell. Uh, and uh, the real. Here's the 2 1 part. And it's 2 and 2. Parker ejected from last night's ball game for vehemently, vehemently, vehemently protesting. Dim Reigns with 37 stolen bases and Mookie with 33. Mookie running, he'll make it, and a good stop on the ball by, I should say, O'Kendall running. See, that was one of his things. He was a Mecca. Motherfucker. <laughs> Testing. Testing? 
I'm still echoing. Well, what better point to end this fiasco than right now? I want to thank everyone for being on this show. The extra innings of Holiday Star Wars, opening day Star Wars. Any closing thoughts? John Arezzi. Let's go, Mets. That's right. Any closing thoughts? John McAdam. Very good. Any closing thoughts? <laughs> Mike Sempervivi. Uh, John, you're muted, but you actually sound great because that way I don't have to hear you speak a bunch of slander about Magnum TA's push in 1985 getting soft or about Brooks Robinson not being the greatest third baseman of all time. Let's go, Nats, your 2019 and 2020 World Series champions. Do you have a reply for that, John McAdam? Of course not. Well... (laughs) I want to thank everyone for being a part of this. We're getting a little wacky here at the end. But uh, what better way to end this show than with the uh, missing John McAdam. We see that he's there. We see his microphone icon is on mute. But apparently he is determined to stay on mute no matter what. No matter even if we talk to him and ask him questions. He has now left the call. He has now now left the call. Maybe there's a storm in in, uh, New Hampshire. (laughs) Well, anyway, I want to thank everyone for appearing on this show. And, of course, for everyone who appeared on opening day Star Wars Part 1, the 605 Super Podcast. Next episode should be out very, very soon. Enjoy these two episodes. But in the meantime, for everyone to join me today, including Mike Sempervivi, muted John McAdam, and Mr. Wrestling John Arezzi, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho! Let's go Mets!